This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 258 of the program. Today is Friday, September 18th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us, and that includes 3 Duan, Abriana Holiday, Alderman Gomez, Base SC, Bonnie Verhunts, CS Coolidge, David Carney, 1111, Ellie HTMLI, Francis Ellis, Jack Anderson, Jill Ryder, Josh Krulik, Joe Taylor, Kyle B. Campion, Preston Crawford, Richard Goodwin, Simon Will, Trev O'Brien, and Trip Squad Org. Thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. I am back after a week, and admittedly, I am a little bit rusty, but you know, I think that the week was, um, it was a good thing. A week off really, I think, helped clear the mind, even though in the Pacific Northwest, we are currently dealing with wildfires that a lot of us alive today haven't experienced like this is unprecedented for a lot of us um but regardless the show must go on and we've got a pretty jam-packed episode for you already planned so we will talk about trump casually threatening once again to do violence against u.s citizens he also floats the idea of running for a third term once again and he defends himself after bob woodward revealed that he knew the dangers of covid19 while he was downplaying it back in february and march Ted Cruz and Republicans threaten us with a good time again. The RNC chairwoman doesn't know who's president. J.K. Rowling takes her transphobia to the next level. Bernie Sanders denies reports that he's concerned about Biden's chances against Trump in November. And a whistleblower alleges ICE is performing mass hysterectomies on detainees. But first, we'll start the show by talking about the fires taking place in Oregon and California, how a conspiracy theory promoted by the far right is making matters worse, and Tucker Carlson thinks that it's blasphemy to bring up climate change when talking about said wildfires. All of this will be discussed on this episode. Hopefully, you all will enjoy the program. Let's get right to it. So as many of you know, um, there are a lot of wildfires going on in Oregon and California. Basically, the entire West Coast is on fire, and it's extremely horrifying. Um, now, for those of you unaware, I took last week off, and this was supposed to be a really nice break where, you know, I felt rejuvenated, but unfortunately, I live in the West Coast, and I was worrying about these fires. Now, thankfully, I'm safe, so you don't have to worry about that, but one thing that's interesting about these fires is even if you're not part of the 10% of Oregonians who have been displaced and have had to evacuate, uh, we have currently the worst air quality on the planet right now. The worst on the planet. And I was tweeting about this and people couldn't believe the numbers. Now, currently, there's still a warning. When you check your weather app, it's going to tell you the air quality is hazardous. Now, just to kind of put this into perspective for people, um, the air quality index has six different levels of health concern. So if you are rated zero to 50, that's good air quality. They really don't start to get concerned 
until you get into, you know, levels 100 through 200, which is when people with, you know, medical conditions may experience illness because of air quality being poor. When you get to two to 300, that's when you really have to worry. So if your air quality, according to the air quality index, is between two and 300, that is officially when they put you on alert. Everyone may experience more serious health effects. When you get past 300, health warnings of emergency conditions, the entire population is more likely to be affected. So at that point, it doesn't matter if you know you have asthma or not everyone is going to be affected so stay indoors don't go outside otherwise this is going to affect you uh so currently what is the air quality index the highest i uh, have seen it go has been over 500 520 that's the highest i've seen it yeah Remember, they stop registering after 300. They, they just say everything above 300 is very, very dangerous. Uh, currently, I'll look at the reading. Um, I don't know what it is. I have been kind of checking it periodically. As of right now, uh, air quality index, we are at 474. So uh, the air is hazardous where I am currently. Yeah. And uh, in case you're wondering, you can smell it in your home when it gets this bad. Like, I smell smoke currently. Basically, the smell has been burned into my nostrils. Um, and in terms of, like, my health, I don't feel particularly bad because of it. But other people in certain areas who I've spoken to have said that, you know, it's given them headaches. It's made them feel nauseous. I know when I let my dogs out to go use the bathroom, they come back with ash on them sometimes. Uh, when I open the, you know, the door, it makes my nostrils burn. You know, your sinuses feel a little bit uh, uh, irritable because of it. Your eyes maybe itch a little bit. The situation is bad. It's really, really bad. I mean, to literally be stuck in the situation where you can't really go out in public places because you could catch a highly contagious virus from other people, and now you can't even really go outside if you're on the West Coast because the air quality is horrible. I mean, it truly feels like we are living in apocalyptic times, and people were sharing photos of um, Oregon and California and uh, comparing it to Blade Runner. That's accurate. Like, for the past couple of days, it has been orange and hazy and it is extremely creepy like you you wake up in the morning and it feels like it's late in the evening and there's like this ominous glow and like if you open the door and you go outside you hear nothing no birds chirping no dogs barking you really don't hear cars driving by in my area at least nobody's outside uh, it feels like you know everyone has abandoned the town even though they're just staying in their houses and their apartments and it's just it's weird. It's a weird feeling. Um, and it kind of led me to this realization that we've already lost the battle when it comes to climate change. And, you know, I was under this impression, or I had this expectation, rather, that, you know, human beings were going to take action on climate change. Unfortunately, you know, developed countries are just going to have to experience it firsthand, even though, you know, developing countries are already seeing the effects of it, you know, rising sea levels. We're just going to have to experience it here in order for us to take action. But this has made me realize that's kind of a privileged position to take because no, we're not. I mean, we already see the increased frequency and severity of hurricanes and we're not doing anything. The West Coast is on fire and there's no discussion from lawmakers currently about drafting legislation to do anything about climate change aside from what's already out there, such as the Green New Deal and whatnot. The president is not saying anything about taking action to mitigate climate change. 
So this has made me realize that it doesn't matter what the consequences of climate change are, how bad it gets. Nothing is going to get bad enough to force the government to take action. I mean, look at what we're doing with the pandemic. Nothing. People are losing their jobs. They are facing an eviction crisis. Now, Trump imposed a moratorium on evictions until December 31st. But when it's January 1st and you don't have months of rent to give to your landlord, what do you do? The answer is nothing. We are not going to do anything, even if it affects us personally. Now, people on Twitter were saying, Mike, if it gets too bad, you've got to evacuate. But the question is, where do you go? Like, I can go to my mom's house where her air quality is slightly worse than where we're at currently. I can go to my uh, niece's uh, place, except she had to evacuate. I mean, there, there's nowhere to go. You you risk making the situation worse. Like, I don't think you'd evacuate if the air quality got too bad. But I mean, there's nothing that you do. You, what do you do? You, like, you get in your car and then you just like drive when you're probably exposing yourself to even more of it than if you just stayed home. I mean, there's nothing you can do. If the air is bad, if the air is hazardous and not breathable for extended periods of time, there's nothing you can do. You're just shit out of luck. And that is, you know, it kind of led me to this realization that, you know, climate change is already here. And if we were going to act based on it impacting us directly in the United States, we would have already done it, right? Hurricane Katrina would have been or should have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, like these things should have made us pay attention. The increased severity and frequency of wildfires should have already gotten people to take action legislatively. I mean, back in 2017, again, we had wildfires in Oregon and the worst that I saw the air quality index get was at 150, but now it's been at over 450 consistently for like the past week. And there's really no urgency that you can sense among lawmakers that we're going to do anything because they're not going to do anything. So, you know, this realization is a little bit depressing because, you know, what do, what do we do with this information? Knowing that the government isn't going to do anything about climate change, regardless of how bad it gets, regardless if we start seeing wars of water, uh, wars over water and, you know, mass migration, you know, regardless if our own citizens here at home are affected. Is that going to encourage government to, you know, take action? Will there ever be a straw that breaks the camel's back? Will there ever be anything that we say enough is enough and actually take action? And I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. So I don't know what to do. You know, you can say, well, maybe we just need mass civil disobedience, you know, protests. But ask yourself, have we seen any concrete steps taken to address the Black Lives Matter protests, which have been going on now for months at the national level? No. We basically have a failed state. That's the conclusion. That's the takeaway. We have a failed state. And knowing that we have a failed state, it gives us a sense of what we have to do, you know, how long the road ahead is to actually get action. It's not just a matter of saying these are the right courses of action and policy steps we have to do and take to make sure that we actually fight this. Like, we don't have a function in government. Look at the way that we responded to COVID. Look at the lack of response or any attempt to address the concerns of the protests. There's just, there's nothing. There's no action. Our government 
is fundamentally incapable of meeting even basic needs of its citizens. So with this information, what we have to do is fix our government before we do anything. Like, we need reforms. Um, how do we get that? I have no idea because I don't know what's going to actually get them to listen to us. I mean, it seems like protests don't work. I just don't know. So, I mean, there's no, like takeaway that i have like there's no summary there's no like call to action it's just like a realization that i came to while living in this situation where i can't open my doors unless it's really quickly to let my dogs out to go potty um unless i want to breathe in hazardous air now this will go away we're expecting rain sometime this week so hopefully that will stop all the wildfires but i mean there's going to become a time where climate change and the consequences of climate change become so horrible that we're going to expect the government to do something finally, but there may not be a time where they actually do that. I mean, look at Flint. They haven't had clean drinking water for over five years now. It's not like, oh, well, it has to happen to us here at home to get them to care. They don't care. Otherwise, they would have done something about, you know, uh, COVID-19 to address the economic issues that it's causing. So, you know, this is kind of a depressing conclusion, but I mean, you kind of go to dark places in your mind when, you know, you're stuck in the situation where there's a pandemic and, you know, you're not just at risk of getting exposed to it if you go to the store, but now you can't even go outside in general for who knows how long, maybe a week, who knows if the rain, which is expected for like a day, will even stop the wildfires. So we don't know how long the air quality along the West Coast and in Oregon is going to be uh hazardous but i mean it's just it, it leads you to conclude that the situation just feels so hopeless and i don't know what to do so i mean i took the week off last week uh as part of you know me trying to you know celebrate my my uh my uh third wedding anniversary and to get a little bit of a mental health break but not feeling too optimistic or um better about the situation if i'm being honest so all you can do is just try to pretend like it's not happening try to distract yourself play video games watch tv I, I don't know like what do you do in this situation it's just we are in such a bizarre time and you know the sad part is that you know even though these fires you know at this level it hasn't happened in i think almost 100 years in oregon it may be rare but it will become more frequent because of climate change if we don't do anything so it's just it it sucks. We are in a hole and we have to find some way to dig ourselves out of this hole. And when I say we, I mean we as a species, human beings. So the entire West Coast right now is being ravaged by wildfires. And we have the worst air quality in the world. But there's a bigger menace that some people in the Pacific Northwest are worried about. Antifa. Because apparently, there have been rumors as well as doctored images online of supposed members of Antifa starting fires, committing acts of arson to loot. But of course, this is not true. But the rumors and the hoax has become such an issue that law enforcement has now had to come out and publicly say this is not true. Stop calling 911 about this because it's not happening. 
So for more on this story, we go to Robert Mackey of The Intercept, who explains four police departments in parts of Oregon ravaged by wildfires propelled by high winds across parched land during hot, dry weather in a changing climate are pleading with the public to stop calling 911 to pass on unfounded rumors that anti-fascist political activists have intentionally set the blazes. The false claims have been spread on social networks by supporters of President Donald Trump, who has spent months pretending that anti-fascists in the Pacific Northwest dedicated to confronting white supremacists are members of an imaginary army of domestic terrorists called Antifa. Primed by that fear-mongering, the president's supporters have fallen hard for internet rumors and hoaxes falsely claiming that anti-fascist arsonists have been caught in the act. Rumors spread just like wildfire, and now our 911 dispatchers and professional staff are being overrun with requests for information and inquiries on an untrue rumor that six Antifa members have been arrested for setting fires. The Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Rosenberg, Oregon, wrote on Facebook on Thursday. This is not true. Unfortunately, people are spreading this rumor and it is causing problems. The Jackson County Sheriff's Office in southwestern Oregon was also forced to respond to the spread of rumors on Thursday. One increasingly problematic issue related to the disastrous fires in Jackson County is the spreading of false information, the Sheriff's Office wrote on Facebook. We are inundated with questions about things that are fake stories. One example is a story circulating that varies about what group is involved as to setting fires and arrests being being made. This is not true. Police officers in the badly hit city of Medford also had to take time away from responding to the crisis to debunk a hoax Facebook post mocked up to look like it had come from their department, which claimed that they had arrested five arsonists based on anonymous tips. This is a made-up graphic and story the department wrote on its real Facebook page next to an image of the fake one. We did not arrest this person for arson nor anyone affiliated with Antifa or Proud Boys as we've heard throughout the day. Also, no confirmed gatherings of Antifa, which has also been reported. On Friday, the Federal Bureau of Investigation also issued a statement calling on the public to stop spreading misinformation related to wildfires. The FBI's Portland office wrote that it too has been receiving reports that extremists are responsible for setting wildfires in Oregon. Now, I shouldn't have to remind people about this, but Antifa is not the enemy. Antifa means anti-fascist. They are against white supremacists. They try to protect marginalized communities who are vulnerable from far-right violence. It's the far-right militias, the gunmen, the armed vigilantes who are the enemies, who are actually posing a threat to people who actually do violence and kill people, not Antifa. And if we're trying to figure out what Antifa's activity is throughout the course of this crisis, well, one person from PDX seems to be really thrilled with what they're doing helping people. He writes, Antifa is running around Portland today, organizing supply runs for refugee support, raising funds for mutual aid, arranging for lodging support, crafting DIY air filters, and so on. Truly some of the best people I've ever known. Absolute heroes. He goes on to add, a lot of people in my network probably have their views of Antifa shaped by Facebook memes or the nightly news and have a low opinion of them. These sources couldn't be more misleading. I am Antifa and so are my friends and we're doing work to keep our community safe. So that's what the anti-fascists are doing. They're not setting fires so they can loot. They're trying to help people, organize supply runs, help members of their community. It's the white supremacist militias that we should be concerned with, not Antifa. But people don't seem to realize the threat that armed vigilantes pose, but hopefully this story does show how threatening they are because this hoax has led to vigilantes harassing journalists and some Oregonians at gunpoint in the name of stopping looting.
So as people try to flee and evacuate because 10% of Oregonians have been displaced, you have armed thugs stopping them because they might be Antifa members trying to go into their towns to do looting or arson. So as a local ABC News affiliate reports, suspicions of looting have driven some residents of an Oregon county to illegally stop unfamiliar drivers at gunpoint, all while much of the county is under an evacuation order as wildfires rage. Clackamas County Sheriff Craig Roberts said several people in the county, in efforts to protect property, had been conducting armed checkpoints, stopping cars they didn't recognize. The first thing I'd ask them to do is please stop that, Roberts said during a Sunday news conference. It is illegal to stop somebody at at gunpoint. The sheriff's office has already reached out to a number of them, he said. Many of the people re-entering the area were going back to retrieve their personal belongings. The last thing I want to see is anything tragically happen because somebody is overreacting to something, he said. So this hoax has led to far-right vigilantes trying to police people in order to stop Antifa when Antifa is not doing anything. There's no evidence that they are committing arson. All that we know about Antifa related to the wildfires is that they're trying to help people. Now, I don't know what's more um, scary to people, uh, anti-fascists or armed thugs stopping you in your vehicles because they think you're Antifa. Like, which do you believe personally poses a bigger threat to you? Because maybe I'm crazy, but it's not the anti-fascists. It's the people with guns. Um, but on top of that, this hoax has whipped people into such a frenzy that they're literally putting their own lives at risk because they're worried about Antifa. ABC News continues, As of Friday, there were at least five wildfires burning in Clackamas County, including the major Riverside and Beachy Creek fires. Most of the county is under an evacuation order, but some residents living in those evacuation zones aren't leaving their homes and are instead staying to defend their property. Residents have crafted homemade signs, lining wire fences, and hazy yellow-tinged streets, all warning looters that they would be shot. Looters get shot. Many of them threaten. So, we live in a world where people are literally more afraid about a non-existent threat than actual fires destroying their homes. And I mean, I'm sorry, but if you are more worried about um, Antifa looters that don't even exist, than the fire that is threatening your entire life and your town... I don't know what to say about that. You're just, you're not very bright. You're not very bright. So this hoax is, uh, it's damaging because these types of hoaxes, even though they exist and originate on the internet and Facebook, they still have real world consequences. When you say that Antifa is doing X because you personally are afraid of them or you want to spread misinformation, that leads to people taking action that could lead to violence, potentially. Armed thugs take to the streets to set up illegal checkpoints to police people because they may or may not be anti-fascist. Like, anyone who's a reasonable person should by default be against fascism. But people who are against fascism that organize and confront white supremacists, apparently they're the bad guys and not the white supremacists that they confront. It's just a bizarro world that we live in where during this crisis that we're experiencing, people are more afraid of Antifa based on nothing.
based on bogus information that's circulating uh, through social media, spread by right-wing pundits, and also spread by some uh, Republican Party politicians who ran for office in Oregon. So it's disturbing, and uh, this is why you have to combat this type of misinformation locally, because it's not just bad because it's you know misinforming people, it's, it's dangerous because it has real-world consequences, and we're seeing that play out here in Oregon. Tucker Carlson of Fox News decided to talk about the wildfires that are taking place along the West Coast, and after pretending to care about the people who are currently suffering because of said wildfires, he then proceeded to scold anyone who dared to bring up climate change. Because why would you bring up climate change when talking about wildfires that are now becoming more common and more severe? I mean, what a partisan thing to do. Why would you politicize this issue by talking about climate change, which... You have to discuss when talking about these types of occurrences. Nonetheless, I mean, what he says here is laughably stupid. It is tragedy on a massive scale. When something this terrible happens, decent people pause. They put their own interests aside for a moment. They consider how they can help. We've seen that kind of selflessness before in this country. This is, remember, the anniversary of 9-11. But there are others for whom altruism is an unknown concept. Self-interest is all they know. These people do not pause, they never do. They relentlessly press forward for any advantage under any circumstances. They see human suffering as a means to increase their personal power. These are the people who turn funerals into political rallies and feel no shame for doing it. As Americans burned to death, people like this swung into action immediately. They went on television with a partisan talking point. Climate change, they said, caused these fires. They didn't explain how exactly that happened, how did climate change do that? They didn't tell us, but they just kept saying it. In the hands of Democratic politicians, climate change is like systemic racism in the sky. You can't see it, but rest assured it's everywhere and it's deadly. And like systemic racism, it is your fault. The American middle class did it. They caused climate change. They ate too many hamburgers. They drove too many SUVs. They had too many children. A lot of them wear t-shirts to work and didn't finish college. And that causes climate change too. And worst of all, some of them may vote for Donald Trump in November. And if there's anything that absolutely, definitively causes climate change, and literally over 100% of scientists agree with this established fact, it is voting for Donald Trump. You might as well start a tire fire in your yard. Hyperbolic much? I mean, if you vote for Donald Trump, you don't care about climate change. You're kind of screwing over younger generations who are going to have to deal with this. I mean, we're already dealing with this, so, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, it's going to be a lot worse. So if you're voting for Donald Trump, someone who's undoing what little progress we've made towards climate change mitigation, then yeah, you're a bad person. But the reason why he thinks it's bad for us to bring up climate change when talking about the wildfires is because... It's a partisan talking point, according to him, and he goes on to say, climate change is like systemic racism in the sky. You can't see it, but rest assured, it's everywhere, and it's deadly, and like systemic racism, it's your fault. The American middle class did it. They caused climate change. So, obviously, this is not just a stupid argument, but it's also a straw man. Climate change is caused by large multinational corporations, 100 of which account for 71% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. Nobody's saying that we're going to blame Bob and Sally for climate change. What we're saying is that we have to regulate the fossil fuel industry because if we don't, we will all die. 
the planet will become uninhabitable. To them, profits are more important than people. So if we don't get them under control, rein in their destruction of the planet for monetary gain, then it will lead to the destruction of our environment. It's not political to say that. It's a fact of reality. Now, I will say that the fires aren't exclusively the result of climate change. Like, it's really difficult to prove that any one event is specifically the result of climate change. But is it logical to deduce that climate change had a lot to do with this? Yeah, I think that if you don't bring up climate change when talking about these wildfires and how severe they are, then you're you're not being honest. You're not having a serious conversation about this. You're not actually trying to address the root causes because yes, it may not be the main cause, but climate change does have a lot to do with these wildfires. And as the New York Times explains, the forests between Eugene and Portland haven't experienced fires this severe in decades, experts say. What's different this time is that exceptionally dry conditions combined with unusually strong and hot east winds have caused wildfires to spiral out of control, threatening neighborhoods that didn't seem vulnerable until now. We're seeing fires in places that we don't normally see fires, said Crystal A. Colden, a professor of fire science at the University of California. Normally, it's far too wet to burn. The fires in Oregon, which have led to the evacuation of hundreds of thousands of people and are approaching the Portland suburbs, stand out from what has already been an extraordinary fire season in the West, where global warming, land use changes, and fire management practices have combined to create a hellish mix of smoldering forests, charred homes, and choking air. Fires are common in the east, which is normally dry, according to Philip Mote, a climate scientist at Oregon State University. In some areas of eastern Oregon, the return period or length of time between major fires is as little as 20 years, he said. But the western slope of the Cascades, which catches most of the moisture that blows in from the Pacific Ocean, is normally wetter. Out here, the return period can be hundreds of years, he said. That protective moisture has faded, in large part because climate change has altered precipitation and temperature patterns. Tim Brown director of the Western Regional Climate Center at the Desert Research Institute in Reno, Nevada, said the extreme warmth had caused vegetation to become exceptionally dry and to burn more readily. Temperature, humidity, wind, and solar radiation combine to dry out brush and are the key elements for fire. We call it evaporative demand, he said. And in recent weeks, he added, the West Cascades have been really dry from the evaporative demand. Those dry conditions were most likely exacerbated by climate change, according to Meg Krachik, a professor at Oregon State's College of Forestry, and they had the effect of teeing up the landscape for a wildfire, she said. The critical moment came Monday and Tuesday when a windstorm carried hot air from the high desert in the eastern part of Oregon over the mountains, rapidly spreading the fires in the more populated western part of the state, according to Josh Clark fire meteorologist at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources. The lesson of this week is that the state must now prepare for more of the same, said Dr. Mote, the Oregon State climate scientist who recalled that extreme warmth had also led to a record low snowpack in 2015. This situation of large fires and that low snow year, these are both things that I and my colleagues who have studied climate change in Oregon for 20 years have been saying would happen eventually, he said, and now they're happening. I'm sure that Tucker Carlson would be outraged when listening to all of these scientists talk about how climate change played a role in these wildfires. Why would they use these partisan talking points? Aren't you supposed to be scientists and not partisan hacks? It's almost like climate change isn't a partisan issue. And if you think climate change is a partisan issue, you're actually the partisan hack. Because climate change is not a political issue or it's not supposed to be. It's a human issue, right? We're supposed to try to figure out why these wildfires are happening specifically 
and address it, yes, but climate change is part of that discussion because these types of things will become more frequent. Uh, hurricanes will become more severe and common because of climate change. All of the things that we were warned about years ago, decades ago, are now coming to fruition. So to say, oh, well, it's preposterous to bring up climate change. Like, do you have to politicize everything? You look like a clown. You look like a clown. And isn't Tucker Carlson supposed to be a populist? Doesn't he know that it's popular to want to take on climate change? Maybe he didn't get the memo. Maybe he's too busy being a Republican Party propagandist to see straight. So, I mean, if you're going to uh, pretend to care about the people who are affected by these wildfires, save it. Because it's bullshit. The only reason why you're talking about this is because you want to engage in climate denialism. You don't like that people are bringing up the fact that climate change is actually playing a role. He also uh, went on to attack Joe Biden for citing climate change. No, Joe Biden is right about this. I don't believe that Joe Biden is actually going to take adequate action to address climate change in a meaningful way, but he's right to at least note how climate change played a role here. Again, it's not like these wildfires happen exclusively because of climate change, but to deny the existence or the role of climate change in these wildfires is irresponsible and idiotic. So Tucker Carlson, once again, is using his platform in a dangerous and irresponsible way. He's trying to get you to think that the people who are citing the likely role that climate change played in these wildfires, they're actually the bad guys. And the people who deny climate change, we're actually the good guys. We're the people who are just trying to, you know, lend some compassion to the people who are affected by this. We're not trying to politicize the situation for partisan gain. No, but you are. By denying climate change, you are taking an inherently partisan action. And the reason why you're doing that is at the behest of the Republican Party, which you do propaganda for. Because Fox News' advertisers, donors to the Republican Party, include the fossil fuel industry. So if we actually took action to mitigate climate change, that would hurt their bottom line. So that's why Tucker Carlson is going to tone police anyone who brings up climate change and tries to make it seem as if they're overly political and they're trying to weaponize this issue in some way. No, climate change is here. This is a reality. I have to deal with this. I can't go outside because the air quality in my area is currently deemed very hazardous. So we have to talk about climate change and not just talk about climate change, actually fucking do something about climate change. Otherwise, things like this are going to be more common. And not only that, they're going to get exponentially worse because we have, what, 10 years to act? Like, after seeing all of this, I think it was Sema Hernandez who made this point on Twitter that, like, it doesn't seem like we have 10 years to act when you see how bad the situation is. Like, it seems like we need to act yesterday in order to actually meaningfully address climate change. So, you know, this situation is frustrating. And when you have ghouls and propagandists like Tucker Carlson uh, trying to scold anyone who talks about climate change, it just makes matters worse. Shut the fuck up. We know you don't care. Save your sympathy because you don't mean it. You're just trying to uh, do propaganda at the behest of the Republican Party who will never take action on climate change. Finally, Mitch McConnell admitted that he believes in anthropogenic climate change, but he still doesn't have a plan to do anything. And he's only saying that now because he wants to get reelected. But we know he doesn't give a shit because Mitch McConnell is a thousand years old. So this is probably the worst that he's going to see of climate change before he croaks. So why would he take action? He's just going to do what his donors want him to do. So, you know, it's really disgusting when people like Tucker Carlson use their platform to promote climate change denialism under the guise of, like, trying to uh, scold anyone who weaponizes this and makes it into a political issue. Like, fuck off. 
Donald Trump sat down for an interview with Judge Deneen Pirro over the weekend, and he once again casually threatened to do violence against U.S. citizens, and this is basically becoming a common phenomenon with him, but nonetheless, I don't think that we should normalize this or become accustomed to it. Whenever the president threatens U.S. citizens and threatens to do violence against U.S. citizens, we should be outraged over this because the president is supposed to protect us, not harm us if we do something that he doesn't like. Um, so take a look at what he says here, because basically he threatens to crush protests in the event people take to the streets and they don't like the results of uh, the election come November. So you talked about election night. I want to talk about election night also, but it brings me to the issue of law and order. Uh, and, and you, when you ran in 2016, you were the law and order candidate. It's almost prescient to think that four years later, that is one of the main issues. So uh, we've got this anarchy going on in the streets. We've got towns in, uh, run by uh, and, and states run by Democrat governors and mayors who are refusing to allow the National Guard to come in. There are people in those cities and states who want order to come in, but you can't go in unless they request your help. That's right. Every problem. What are you going to do? Let's say there are there are threats. They say that they're going to threaten riots if they lose on election night. Assuming we get a a, an ele a, a winner on election night, what are you going to do? We'll put them down very quickly How are you if they do, do that? that. We have the right to do that. We have the power to do that if we want. Look. It's called insurrection. We just Insur send in and we, we do it very easy. I mean, it's very easy. I'd rather not do that because there's no reason for it. But if we had to, we'd do that and put it down within minutes. Within minutes. Uh, Minneapolis, they were having problems. We sent in the National Guard within a half an hour. That was the end of the problem. It all went away. Kenosha. Uh, you look at Kenosha. Look at the problems they had. In fact, the sheriffs there, the police chief, they're all on my side 100%. Now, first of all, I don't know what threats Judge Jeannie Pirro is referring to when she talks about people who are saying they're going to riot if Joe Biden loses. Like most of the people currently in the streets, if you ask them, I bet, don't actually feel very enthusiastic about Joe Biden. So I don't know where these supposed threats are coming from, but I think that a lot of this is just fear-mongering from the far right. So regardless, like in this hypothetical situation, if Donald Trump wins, will there be protests? I mean, I'm sure that there will be, you know, in some form. I don't think anyone is threatening to riot as far as I know, but there was the Women's March when Trump was sworn in. There were people who were protesting because they didn't like that a fascist was elected. And I think that, you know, if you feel some sense of outrage or, you know, you're uncomfortable at the fact of a fascist occupying the highest level of government, then you're a reasonable person. But what they say about what they do to protesters or rioters in this instance is what should really concern everyone. Trump basically says, um, you know, we would uh, put them down very quickly. That's exactly what he says. Put them down very quickly. We have the right to do that. We have the power to do that, quote, if we won. Now, that's really interesting to me because you're already the president. It's not like you'd get some new power if you're reelected. You're the president currently. So what he's tacitly admitting here is that if he is reelected, he's going to become even more authoritarian because he's unrestrained. Now, he has to worry a little bit about what he does and how his actions are perceived because if he fucks up, he could lose. Joe Biden could win. And in fact, Joe Biden is on track to win currently, so he can't do too much can't get too authoritarian, but when he says, oh, we have the power to do that if we won, that tells us that, oh, okay, so he's going to get much more authoritarian. He's going to put down the protests like that, and he boasts about him having the power to do that. He even says it's called insurrection, so he's once again threatening to use the Insurrection Act. 
And what he also says, which should uh, startle a lot of people who worry about the country, law enforcement all over the country is on my side. Now, you can say Donald Trump thinks that everyone loves him, but I think he's largely correct about that. We have a lot of people in police departments who are far right. Just last week, we published a, you know, a video about how white supremacists are infiltrating police departments across the country. And the FBI has been warning about this for over a decade and nobody's taking any action. So I do think that, you know, by and large, police departments do side with Republicans and Donald Trump. So for him to say this, what he's telling us is that he has the legitimacy to act in a way that may be violent or unconstitutional. Um, now, in this next clip that I'm going to show you, he kind of walks back, you know, saying he's going to use the uh, the Insurrection Act, even if he explicitly cited it there. But Judge Jeanine Pirro is going to kind of press him a little bit and I guess encourage him in a way to use the Insurrection Act already because, you know, currently you have to wait until governors give you permission to send in the U.S. military. Now, he wasn't doing this. He was just sending his goons to occupy Portland. But, you know, now he's saying, well, I have to wait for their permission. And Judge Nin Pirro is saying, why do you have to wait? Just just do it now. Now you're waiting to be asked in. When does that, when is that change? When do so, you cross the Rubicon? Well, in Kenosha, they asked men. Right. And we did a job like nobody's ever seen before. But if they don't ask you when, there are American people who want to. you're not allowed to do it unless you do insurrection, in which case it's just not big enough for insurrection. You won't do insurrection before no, election You don't day. need it. You don't know. Not yet. Oh, I'd be willing to do it in a heartbeat if you needed it, but we don't need it. Our National when Guard. When do you need it? Our National Guard is so good and so tough. But they've and by the way, asked. police departments in places that we're talking about, Seattle, we were going into Seattle, and they solved the problem the night before we got there. Yeah, we were getting ready to there. go. They heard we were going in. Did you hear Ted Wheeler's numbers? Like 20% in uh, Portland. Ted Wheeler's a disaster. He's right. a laughingstock. He went out to protest with these so-called agitators, and they were going to destroy him. They were going to beat him up badly. He fortunately had security, but they were going to beat him up badly. The man is a disaster. If he would say, come into Portland, within a half an hour, the whole thing would be solved. he's not going to say that. Uh, the governor's gotten closer. Look what's going on out there. I That's will tell Kate you, Brown, the that? governor has gotten closer. I spoke to the governor two days ago. Good. They're arresting a lot of people. Good. Now, we sent in the U.S. Marshals for the killer, the man that killed the young man in the street. Just right. shot him. I mean, it was yeah, on television. Cold Cold-blooded killed him. He didn't like his hat or he didn't yeah. like something and it wasn't a Trump hat. Right. It was peaceful. It was prayer. It was a lot. It was a religious hat. Right. And he shot him cold blood. Two and a half days went by and I put out, when are you going to go get him? And the U.S. Marshals went in to get him. Good. And in a short period of time, they ended in a gunfight. This guy was a violent criminal. Out of the mouth. And the U.S. Marshals killed him. Now, we need more details, certainly, but... What he's basically bragging about there is the U.S. Marshals killing someone, not giving that individual due process. The person who allegedly shot the far-right protester from the uh, prayer group or whatever it is in Portland, um, one of the militia members that was there to antagonize the Black Lives Matter protesters. There was a shootout and one of them were killed. Now, the person who allegedly pulled the trigger on that far-right person, he was assassinated. Now, again, we don't necessarily know if the U.S. Marshals attempted to apprehend him and he tried to fire at them. So they got in a gunfight, which ended in, in him dying. But it kind of sounds like Donald Trump is alluding to the fact that we were just going to go in and assassinate him, period. We're going to go get him. 
Like, the, the language that he's using here really flippantly leads me to believe that the goal here was to just kill this dude, who's a U.S. citizen, who you can't kill. Every U.S. citizen is guaranteed due process, but in Donald Trump's America, where supposedly law and order is something that we, uh, we believe in, we're just killing U.S. citizens now. Because we know he's bad if he shot that far-right protester. We don't know if self-defense came into play. We only consider whether or not self-defense was warranted if, you know, it's a far-right figure like Kyle Rittenhouse. But, I mean, nonetheless, we don't know the details. But we sent in U.S. Marshals, is what he says, and they killed a U.S. citizen. This is terrifying. Now, he's not the first president to extrajudicially murder a U.S. citizen. Obama did this as well. But that doesn't make it right, and every time a president does this, we should all unequivocally denounce it, regardless if it's a Democrat or a Republican, because U.S. citizens have constitutional rights. U.S. citizens don't just get executed by U.S. marshals or the U.S. government if they don't like that individual. You arrest them, you uh, try that person, and you uh, administer justice that way. You don't just choose to kill them if you don't like them. And the fact that he's talking about this as if the U.S. Marshals just went in and assassinated him, that should disturb everyone. But the fact that it doesn't shows you what we've been willing to accept in this country. Like, this is such a normal thing with Donald Trump where he threatens violence and, you know, just talks about crushing these protests and now is talking about assassinating someone that we just kind of accepted. It's a normal thing. We've just come to expect violence from the U.S. government against us. And once you know, citizens start to accept that as a thing that's legitimate, then the country just devolves into chaos. Now, throughout the entire clip there, he was talking about how uh, good and tough the National Guard is. Now, he says he won't use the Insurrection Act, so he kind of contradicted himself there uh, because he says that, you know, these protests just aren't big enough currently to warrant that. But nonetheless, if we wanted to, we can crush these protests like that. Now, throughout that entire conversation, they were talking about what they could do to crush the protests, but not once was there any consideration to maybe meet with the protesters. Talk with someone who is one of the leaders of the protests or someone who represents the protests and address their concerns. Like, that is something that isn't even part of the equation. When we see these protests, the only thing that we think about is how to crush them, not to actually address their concerns, consider whether or not there's a legitimate reason for people to be protesting. We just think of ways to crush them. That's where we're at in America. Now, in a different country, if protests were going on for months, usually we would see if that government is functioning, the government respond with legislation or policies. But has Donald Trump proposed any policy solutions? To get the protests to stop? Has he signed any executive orders that would appease the protesters? No, because to him, he doesn't care why they're protesting. He just wants it to stop. And there's uh, only one way to get them to stop if you aren't going to try to respond to their needs legislatively. You use force. You use violence against them. So, I mean, this is disturbing. The fact that the president just casually threatens violence against U.S. citizens semi-regularly like we shouldn't become accustomed to this and accept this it's unacceptable this is disgusting it's morally reprehensible and as u.s citizens we are entitled to due process we have constitutional rights so i mean if you truly do care about law and order then if you support donald trump 
you're an idiot. You don't care about law and order because he showed us that he has no regard for the rule of law or the Constitution. And it's despicable. About a month ago, we talked about how Donald Trump was once again trolling libs about how he might just run for a third term because, you know, if a president is treated so poorly, then I think maybe there's a case to be made that you are entitled to run for a third term. So he made that joke. The libs were triggered expectedly. And, you know, it's it's all fun and games. But he's joking about it once again, that maybe he wants to run for a third term. And I use the word joke really loosely because even though that's kind of the excuse from the right when he says things like this, I don't actually think he's joking. I think that he genuinely wants to run for a third term, assuming he's able to win a second term. But he did it again. Take a look. And 52 days from now, we're going to win Nevada. And we're going to win four more years in the White House. And then after that, we'll negotiate, right? Because we're probably, based on the way we were treated, we're probably entitled to another four after that. And it should never happen to another president. It's just a dishonest group of people. Yeah, I'm triggered. He's trolling. Master troll. At some point, like, you can't use, oh, he's just kidding, as an excuse. This is the president of the United States. There's no clause in the 22nd Amendment that says that a president can only serve two terms unless he thinks that people were mean to him. Then he gets to make the case for himself about a possible third or fourth term. Like, that's not a thing. And I think that using joking or trolling as an excuse is not acceptable. And I'm not trying to be like the tone police or engage in respectability politics because if there's anything I don't care about, it's decorum or norms. But this isn't about just Trump being mean and putting out mean tweets and being unpresidential. This is about a sitting president saying, I'm going to ignore the Constitution and I'm going to effectively become a dictator. I'm going to seek out a third term. Again, I always make this point, but I think it's an important point, albeit a hacky one, but I mean, it's it's something that we all know would happen. If Hillary did this, if Obama did this, they would lose their shit on the right. But because Trump does it, they're okay with it. So it's not surprising, but this is one of those things where I don't think we should allow it to be a normal thing under Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump might not necessarily be competent enough to actually be a dictator and turn the United States into a full-fledged authoritarian regime, even if we are on track to become that. But someone more competent, a fascist who actually isn't an idiot, will come along and do it. Trump's just kind of warming them up to that idea. So, I mean, we should never allow this to be a common thing. And whenever he does this, don't let him get away with just saying, oh, this is a joke. Or don't let his supporters just say, you know, he's just kidding. Are you triggered? No, that's fucking stupid. This is the president. You can't be joking about being a dictator. And I don't even believe that you're joking. I think he's being serious. I think he believes he actually can make a case to run for a third term because people were mean to him. I mean, what a fucking idiot. If you are joking, then it's not very funny. But if you are being serious, then you're just entitled and you're a wannabe dictator. While I was away last week, there was a scandal regarding Donald Trump that I think is so serious that 
it should end his presidency. Like, if this were a functioning democracy and a normal world where there were consequences for the actions of a lawmaker who is either incompetent or doing something to harm people actively, this would have ended his presidency. Not just his campaign, but his presidency. But because there's no accountability in D.C., um, I'm sure that nothing will come of this, but I'm referring, of course, to the Bob Woodward tapes where Donald Trump spoke to him in February and he told him about how serious COVID-19 was, that he knew at that time that it was even airborne in certain cases indoors. Now, we all know that he's been downplaying it this entire time. So for him to know that, Having known that he knew how serious this was and him not acting when we're approaching 200,000 deaths due to COVID-19, this is criminal negligence at a minimum. So I'm sure everyone has heard this by now, but if not, this is uh, what was released from an interview with Bob Woodward, where he not only knew about COVID-19 severity, but then he admitted that he tried to downplay it because... He didn't want to cause a panic. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the uh, the virus. And I think he's going to have it in good shape. But, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's, uh, Indeed it, it, goes, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air. And that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is five per... You know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. John, I, I just want all of us to remember we are used to the virus now, as used as you can be. But if you go back to the beginning of February, the American public, we thought this was a problem in China. The notion of it being airborne, 5% uh, more deadly. These are very specific details that the president had in the very same time period that he is saying it's all going to go away. Right. That's February 7th. You just played that piece February of the conversation. 7th. He talks about how deadly it is. He said two weeks later, 20 days later in India, it's a problem that's going to go away. Within a couple of days, it's going to be down to zero. The president telling Woodward one thing, telling the American people in the world something very different. But you... The interesting part is the president makes no bones about it, that he was doing this on purpose, that he decided as a strategy not to convey the seriousness of this because he didn't want to, quote, inside a panic. Correct. So Woodward does another interview, uh, March 19th. We also have the audio of that. Again, the president in his own words. And just to set this up, remember, he has been publicly minimizing the threat to young people. Not a problem for young people. He still minimizes uh, the threat to young people. So he addresses that, and then uh, you'll hear he admits that he's not sharing everything he knows. 
now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and, and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So what's going on give in me a, a moment of talking to somebody, going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to oh my god the gravity is uh, almost inexplicable and unexplainable well i think bob really to be honest with sure, you sure i want you to i be. wanted to uh, i wanted to always play it down i still like playing it down yes sir. because i don't want to create a panic yeah this should end his presidency. Every single person should be furious listening to him talk about how severe COVID-19 was back in February. Because he bungled it. He knew how severe it was, and he didn't act accordingly to stop it. And now 200,000 Americans are dead on his watch. 200,000 Americans. Every single year, we have a memorial for 9-11 where 3,000 Americans died. But 200,000 Americans are dead on his watch, and this president is possibly going to get reelected. I mean, the polls don't show that he's in a good position, but he should be resigning. Like, there should be so much pressure on him to resign that it's overwhelming. And I'm not saying I want Mike Pence to be president, but 200,000 deaths, there's got to be some accountability. And the fact that there's not shows you how broken our political system is. This is criminal negligence at a minimum. At a minimum. And I don't care if you're a Trump supporter or, you know, I don't care who you are. Like, this is not political. 200,000 Americans have died. And had he acted sooner and more competently, he could have saved thousands of lives. So the fact that his own supporters are letting him get away with this, when we know they wouldn't let Obama get away with the same thing, it shows you that this is a cult. If you support Donald Trump till this day, you are anti-American. You are in a cult. You are brainwashed. Now, Joe Biden's response to this actually was pretty spot on. He says that this is basically um, criminal, possibly. And I'm glad he said that. But Trump's response to um, Joe Biden saying that this was possibly criminally negligent was no you. That's what he said in an interview with Janine Pirro when she asked him about the Bob Woodward tapes. Joe Biden has indicated after the uh, uh, Woodward information came out that your handling of the coronavirus and that situation was not only despicable, but it's almost criminal. What do you say to Joe Biden? Well, I think a statement like that is criminal because we did a much better job than he could ever have done. As you know, he was months later before he even thought the ban was a good thing and ultimately he had to apologize for what he did. We would have lost hundreds of thousands of lives. And what I said to Woodward was actually good. I said, calm, we need calm. We don't need panic. Uh, they want me to jump up and down and start screaming, is everyone going to die? Is everyone going to That's not what leadership is about. I'm a cheerleader for the country. We need calm. That's all I've said. And by the way, that was done after. That was done after I had already banned China right. from coming into the country. That was in February. So you did I the ban January 31st. Yeah. So, Janine, I took tremendous steps. Everybody knew how I feel. Otherwise, I wouldn't be banning China. Then shortly thereafter, I banned Europe. We saved hundreds of thousands of lives with each one of those bans and saved probably two or two and a half million lives by doing what we did early. Mr. President, Joe Biden says that your response to this was criminal. What do you say to that? Uh, I think that him saying that I was criminal is criminal. No, you. 
any statement is not criminal because we have something called the First Amendment, which Donald Trump doesn't like in spite of him claiming that he supports the First Amendment. But what a laughable response. Joe Biden is right. Your response was criminal. And your excuse of, oh, I didn't want to cause a panic is bullshit. Your entire presidency is fear-mongering and an attempt to cause a panic so that way people are afraid and they think that Republicans will protect them. I mean, you want us to panic over Black Lives Matter and Antifa and everything else, but you didn't want us to panic over something that actually ended up killing 200,000 Americans? I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And basically, he defends himself by referencing the travel ban from China. But here's the thing, you don't get to use that as a defense because had you not downplayed the severity of the virus, maybe more people would have actually understood your reasoning for the ban in the first place and not just thought that at the time you were using coronavirus as an excuse to be more xenophobic and institute more xenophobic policies after you've spent years doing just that, fear-mongering about immigrants and migrant caravans from Latin America. I mean, everything you do has been an attempt to cause fear and hysteria. You literally instituted a Muslim ban from certain countries. So, I mean, had you actually been upfront with the American people and explained to us how severe this was, maybe people wouldn't have thought that you were being xenophobic. If you explained, look, I know that you all think that I'm xenophobic, but we really need a travel ban from everywhere because this is super serious. Maybe people would have understood it, but you told us there was nothing to worry about. So when you say there's nothing to worry about, but we need a travel ban, is it really preposterous to think that you're just using this as an excuse to be more xenophobic? Of course it isn't. So, I mean, that's not an excuse. Like you saying I wanted a travel ban is not an excuse. We needed to shut down the fucking country, shut down the economy. Institute a nationwide face mask mandate, which you still won't do, but you didn't do it, and 200,000 Americans died. And now, you're insulted that people are saying that what you did was criminally negligent? You are the leader of the country. Of course what you did was negligent at a minimum. So, I mean, this really should end his presidency. He should be resigning. Like, there should be at least pressure on him to resign, but the fact that he's not even experiencing a modicum of pressure shows you how fucked up and dysfunctional our country is. If a president can bungle a pandemic so bad that it leads to 200,000 Americans dying, and he's not even concerned about people calling on him to step down, it shows you that our government fundamentally is broken, because any leader that sees 200,000 of their own citizens dead on, under their watch that leader should be fearing for their ass, fearing that people aren't going to demand that he leave immediately and drag him out of the White House. It's just honestly baffling to me. And Bob Woodward, on another note, to hang on to these tapes, sit on them for so long just because you want to sell a book, that's really fucked up because this is information that the public needed to know. But because you wanted to sell your book and you wanted to release this at the correct time that was convenient for you... I mean, that's another aspect of the story, but I mean, everyone should just be mad that the president knew how severe COVID-19 was, and he intentionally lied to us, and now 200,000 Americans died as a result, when if he actually acted competently and told us how serious it was, maybe more people would have survived. He's a piece of shit, and anyone who defends him at this point is a... Uh, delusional. That's the nicest way I can put it. Ted Cruz put out what is supposed to be a pro-Trump ad, although at the end he doesn't explicitly endorse Donald Trump and he just puts Ted Cruz for the U.S. Senate, which is weird to me because 
Ted Cruz is not up for re-election this year, so he's not running for anything, so he's not explicitly endorsing Donald Trump. This is supposed to be just an anti-Biden attack ad, but at the end of the day, when you watch what he has to say about Biden, it's unintentionally promoting Joe Biden. So I don't necessarily know what Ted Cruz is trying to accomplish with this, but what I do know is that the Joe Biden that he describes in this ad does not line up with the Joe Biden that we all know in reality. But if Joe Biden were the individual who Ted Cruz says he is, he would be way more popular. So take a look at this ad that Ted Cruz decided to put out, which makes Joe Biden seem way cooler than he is. When Joe Biden is elected president, when we have a Democratic House, Democratic Senate, we can begin the process of transforming this government and our nation. Funny, sometimes American journalists talk about how bad a country is because people are lining up for food. That's a good thing. If these guys win, we're going to wake up with Bernie Sanders as Secretary of State and get ready to see him embracing Nicolas Maduro and Communist Cuba. But I remember being very excited when, when Fidel Castro made the revolution in Cuba. I was a kid and I remember reading that. And it was just seemed right and appropriate that poor people were rising up against rather ugly rich people. Many of the ideas we fought for that just a few years ago were considered radical. Are now mainstream. Okay, so let me get this right here. If Joe Biden wins, not only will he be controlled by Bernie Sanders, but he is going to appoint Bernie Sanders as Secretary of State. He'll make Bernie Sanders the chief diplomat of the United States government. What's the problem? <laughs> that sounds incredible. Are you serious? If this were actually true, Joe Biden would become more popular overnight. And if he actually committed to make Bernie Sanders secretary of state, he'd get like 100,000 new voters overnight like that. I guarantee it. 100,000 votes at a minimum. Because currently, Joe Biden is trying to appeal to young voters by giving them QR codes that they can scan into their Animal Crossing island so they can have Joe Biden, Kamala Harris yard signs. Um, he's trying to appeal to them by uh, positioning himself as a Democratic Avenger. But if he just committed to this, he'd be way more popular because Bernie Sanders is a popular figure. But I mean, this ad isn't going to appeal to anyone who hasn't already drunk the Kool-Aid. Like, Joe Biden absolutely needs the left to win. That is a fact. And I think that he's going to get most of the left. But, you know, you need young people to actually get off of their asses and vote. That's a struggle that the Democratic Party has had. They, they don't know how to get young people out. Now, it's not that difficult. You just propose policies. But, I mean, they don't know what to do. So if you actually said and committed to put Bernie Sanders in your cabinet and say you'd make him secretary of state, that would be one way to really appeal to people, because even if they don't believe that Joe Biden is going to push for things like a $15 minimum wage, a policy he supposedly supports, at least people would feel more comfortable voting for Biden, knowing that someone like Bernie would be in his ear and in his cabinet, influencing him, pushing him in the right direction. So if this were actually true, like Joe Biden would become much more popular. I bet that if he committed to this, his polling would actually increase. So this is supposed to be something that hurts Joe Biden, 
but I think it unintentionally promotes Joe Biden. So what is Ted Cruz's agenda here? Because we know that he still is a little bit butthurt about what went down back in 2016 when, you know, Donald Trump insulted him and his wife. And then, you know, Ted Cruz kind of had to be a cuck and suck it up and phone bank for Donald Trump. There's that infamous picture of him looking absolutely miserable phone banking for Donald Trump. But I mean, is he like trying to promote Joe Biden over Donald Trump because he wants to run in 2024? I don't know. But if you truly believe that Trump deserves a second term, this is not the way to go about it. I promise you that, Ted, this is not the way to go about it because you are threatening us with a good time. We want more of Bernie Sanders. He's the most popular senator in the United States, unlike you. So if Joe Biden were actually controlled by Bernie, if the Democratic Party at large was controlled by Bernie Sanders, they would be much more popular. Now, that's not true. Again, I wish it were true. I would love the Democratic Party if they actually embraced ideas like Medicare for all and embraced some of what Bernie Sanders talks about. But I mean, this ad is a joke, like what they try to do to scare voters is basically say, listen, this guy, Joe Biden, he may not be a radical socialist because saying that makes us sound a little bit ridiculous, but he will be controlled by radical socialists like the squad and Bernie Sanders. I mean, I don't know that that's the message you want to put out there because the policies that Bernie and the squad support are very popular, such as Medicare for all, a Green New Deal ending the wars, but keep at it because this is not going to do what you think it's going to do. I am still perplexed by the line of attack that Donald Trump is continuing to use against Joe Biden. He's basically using imagery from Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd riots to basically scare people into thinking that this is what they can expect, this type of chaos and anarchy if Joe Biden is elected. This is Joe Biden's America. The only problem is that that assertion is laughable on its face because this is all happening in Donald Trump's America. But still, they're rolling with it. Like, I don't know why they think this line of attack is persuasive. I don't know who they think they're going to persuade with this, but this is exactly what they've been saying, and they're sticking to this line of attack. Now, RNC Research tweeted out an ABC News interview with Simone Sanders, who is Joe Biden's press spokesperson. And in this clip, George Stephanopoulos grills her for tweets Biden made where he was critical of the prospect of a travel ban proposed by Trump in early March. Now, even though I rarely agree with her, she is right in this clip that Joe Biden does, in fact, get a pass for this because he wasn't privy to the information that Donald Trump had, and none of us knew specifically what we were dealing with at that time. And it wasn't unreasonable for us to think that Donald Trump was just using this, like other issues, to be xenophobic, to impose more xenophobic policies that disproportionately target specific groups of people. Like, that's not something that's ridiculous. We're not unreasonable for assuming that Trump was just being a bigot because that's what he does. Had he shared the information he knew at the time with us, maybe we would have been more receptive to that policy uh, proposition. But I mean, still, Joe Biden gets a pass for this. I disagree with Joe Biden when it comes to a lot of things, but he was not privy to that information. So he gets a pass. But even though he gets a pass, Joe Biden was, in fact, wrong. In fact, many others were wrong because we were working with limited information. We did not know the severity of COVID-19 back in January and February, but still, RNC Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel tweeted out an attack on Joe Biden in response to that interview, and she shared that tweet by RNC Research, and what she says 
is going to make your head explode. She says, Joe Biden can't run from his disastrous record responding to the coronavirus. The truth hurts, Joe. <laughs> Yikes. Oh my God. That is a real tweet. Yes, it's not a fake screenshot. It's not a hoax. And yes, she still has it up. She hasn't deleted it yet. Rana, I don't know how to tell you this, but this is going to blow your mind. Joe Biden does not have a record on responding to coronavirus because he's not the president. Donald Trump was the president. Now, I'm sure that the irony was lost on her, but the person who we should be looking at, who bungled the response to COVID-19, who had power at the time, who had knowledge that all of us did not have, is Donald Trump. And yet she's attacking Joe Biden for his response to coronavirus. What did you expect him to do? He wasn't in a position to implement policies. He didn't even have the Democratic nomination wrapped up at that time. So to criticize him for critiquing the prospect of a travel ban when Trump always is doing xenophobic things and trying to weaponize certain issues to be more xenophobic, I don't care. He wasn't in power. Had Joe Biden been actually in a position of power in government and failed to act, then I think you can criticize him, right? But in this instance, you look like an absolute buffoon to criticize Joe Biden's record on COVID-19 when he didn't have power. Donald Trump had power. Donald Trump is the one who bungled it. So basically what they're doing is they're taking a truth and they're flipping it on its head, saying the opposite of what's true in hopes that, you know, the people who are already predisposed to believe this bullshit buy into it and eat it up and actually think that Joe Biden did fail to respond accurate or adequately to COVID-19. I don't know what they expect from this, but maybe if they if they flip the truth on its head and they say that Joe Biden actually had a bad response to COVID-19, maybe people will think or maybe they think people will think that some of the pressure should be taken off of Donald Trump. I don't know, but this is so bizarre. I, I can't imagine this appeals to anyone. Like, this isn't going to appeal to the independents who they're trying to win over. It's not going to appeal to moderate Democrats or moderate Republicans. You say things like this and you look like a fucking idiot. Because Joe Biden is not the president. Donald Trump is the president. So I don't know what else to say about this. The RNC chairwoman may be a bigger clown than the DNC chairman, Tom Perez. Like, I, I didn't think that was possible. Tom Perez is so disliked that even Mother Nature hates him. Birds literally are shitting on him. Uh, but I guess that she thinks that Joe Biden was the president and he can't run from his disastrous record responding to coronavirus. You are delusional. You are absolutely delusional, and regardless of how loudly you scream, we're not going to buy into your delusions of grandeur. Trump is the president, not Joe Biden. A whistleblower from an ICE detention center in Georgia is sounding the alarm about a practice that should absolutely shake everyone to their cores. This is from Law and Crime. Jerry Lamb reports several legal advocacy groups on Monday filed a whistleblower complaint on behalf of a nurse at an Immigration and Customs Enforcement detention center documenting jarring medical neglect within the facility, including a refusal to test detainees for the novel coronavirus and an exorbitant rate of hysteria being performed on immigrant women. The nurse, Don Wooden, was employed at the Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia, which is operated by LaSalle Corrections, a private 
prison company. The complaint was filed with the Office of the Inspector General for the Department of Homeland Security by advocacy groups Project South, Georgia Detention Watch, Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights, and South Georgia Immigrant Support Network. Multiple women came forward to tell Project South about what they perceived to be the inordinate rate at which women in ICDC were subjected to hysterectomies, a surgical operation in which all or part of the uterus is removed. Additionally, many of the immigrant women who underwent the procedure were reportedly confused when asked to explain why they had the surgery, with one detainee likening their treatment to prisoners in concentration camps. According to Wooten, ICDC consistently used a particular gynecologist outside the facility who almost always opted to remove all or part of the uterus of his female detainee patients. Everybody he sees has a hysterectomy, just about everybody, Wooten said, adding that everybody's uterus cannot be that bad. Wooten, who is being represented in the matter by the Government Accountability Project, also confirmed that many of the detained women told her that they didn't understand why they were being forced to have the procedure. She explained that some of the nurses who didn't speak Spanish obtained consent from detainees by simply googling Spanish. The complaint details several accounts from detainees, including one woman who was not properly anesthetized during the procedure and heard the aforementioned doctor tell the nurse he had mistakenly removed the wrong ovary, resulting in her losing all reproductive ability. Another said she was scheduled for the procedure, but when she questioned why it was necessary, she was given at least three completely different answers. Another nurse then told her the procedure was to mitigate her heavy menstrual bleeding, which the woman had never experienced. When she explained that, the nurse responded by getting angry and agitated and began yelling at her. Now, at the same facility, The Intercept has a more detailed report about how the same nurse is alleging that they're refusing to test detainees and they're also underreporting COVID-19 cases at this particular facility. Now, since this story broke, ICE has responded and basically they said that they're just going to defer to the OIG for an investigation and they say, quote, in general, anonymous unproven allegations made without any fact-checkable specifics should be treated with the appropriate skepticism they deserve. And I think that's fair. I think that we do need to be skeptical until we have more details. I think that there needs to be a thorough investigation. However, having said that, just getting the details about this story at face value, is this believable to me, given what we know about ICE detention centers, especially at these private facilities? Uh, yeah, it's very believable. I, I think that when I read this, it seems like they're either being intentionally um, violent against these women because this would be an act of violence or they're just criminally negligent. But this is deeply disturbing. Like, reading this, some of the details, I, I can't even believe it. Like, for them to not speak Spanish and then get consent by Googling Spanish, are we confident that they know what they're agreeing to? This is happening in America, allegedly. And I say allegedly because this hasn't been confirmed yet, but the things that happen at these detention centers, we already know it's horrible. Lawmakers who have visited these detention centers say that people are crying because they don't have soap or shampoo. They don't have space. And we know that COVID-19 has uh, been an issue. There's been outbreaks at various facilities and it's not being treated uh, with the proper care. And now they're saying at this facility they're underreporting COVID-19 cases. And on top of that, they're performing mass hysterectomies is what the title says. Mass hysterectomies. And there was controversy around the use of the term concentration camps. If this isn't a concentration camp, 
then I don't know what is. But this is deeply, deeply disturbing. And I really hope that we get more information about this. And if we can confirm that this is true at this facility, then you know that other things are happening at other facilities that may be as disturbing, um, if not comparable to this. I don't even know what to say. Like, there's no words really to put this into perspective or to make it seem like it's, uh, you know, real because it just seems like something that you hear about in a documentary that you watch on Netflix about something that happened in a different country like a long time ago. But it's happening now. Yeah, so we have this information. This whistleblower is trying to get her story out there. And we'll have to wait and see, you know, uh, hold judgment for more details. But what we know now about the uh, story itself at face value is disturbing to say the least. All right, folks, I did it. I found the stupidest person in America. So at an anti-mask rally, which is still a thing apparently in the middle of a pandemic, this person, she said something that almost made my head explode. She equated anti-mask activism to police brutality against George Floyd. Take a look. Hundreds have gathered here in front of the Washington County Administration building calling for the end of a mask mandate, saying they are tired of not living their normal lives. Passionate call for action Friday morning in St. George. Several police officers on standby as many locals called concerns about coronavirus spikes overblown. The flu kills more than coronavirus. Others calling the virus a hoax or stating that asymptomatic carriers simply do not exist and they cannot be forced to wear masks anywhere as citizens of the United States. If we want to wear a mask, that's fine. We can take care of ourselves. Some rally attendees say they shouldn't ever wear masks if they have any medical issues or mental health concerns or if they feel they simply can't breathe. When George Floyd was saying, I can't breathe, and then he died, and now we're wearing a mask, and we say, I can't breathe, but we're being forced to wear it anyway. But many say that they believe in all cases, masks jeopardize kids' health. Parents are demanding they have the right to decide what to do with their children. I'll tell you another reason I hate masks. Most child molesters love them. School administrators responding that they don't understand why crowds are protesting them based on a mandate given by the governor. They blocked off the uh, front entrance to the school building and we went out to ask them to move and they uh, attempted to storm the school building. The school board is implementing the governor's recent order that face shields alone are not enough. And if a parent is adamant that their child cannot wear a mask or a shield, they must fill out a form including a doctor's note so the district can review it. In St. George, Katie Kralis, ABC4 News. That is going to be a big yikes from me. <laughs> How do you say that with a straight face? When George Floyd said that he couldn't breathe, he had a knee on his neck for nine minutes. If you're wearing a mask, the difference is you can wear a mask for nine minutes and breathe. It may be uncomfortable, it may be hot, but it's not like you can't breathe. There's not a large number of people dropping dead because they're wearing masks for an extended period of time. Like, this is... Such a weird thing, such a strange hill to die on. And I am, like, pleased to see that the anti-mask hysteria, for the most part, has died down. But there's still holdouts, people like this, who believe, genuinely so, that they are being wronged. That these mask mandates are posing a risk to their lives. And I'm sorry, I can't help but think you're a stupid person if you believe this. Nobody likes wearing masks. 
But this is what we have to do. We're living through a pandemic for who knows how long, and we have to wear masks because that's how we stop the spread of COVID-19. If you don't want to wear a mask, then stay home. But if you don't want to stay home, then you have to wear a mask. This is non-negotiable. There's no medical condition where you can't wear a mask. I get that there are issues with some people wearing masks. With children, for example, like if you put it on a toddler, you know, it's going to be difficult to get them to keep it on. 99.9% of the population is fine wearing a mask. Fine wearing a mask. But if you are in America and you're a right-winger, you're always the victim under any circumstances. It doesn't matter how minimal the inconvenience is, you are the victim. And we're still getting these viral videos of male and female Karens yelling at minimum wage workers because they aren't allowed to shop at stores um, without masks. It's just, I mean, I've said everything that I need to say about this. Most people are logical enough to at least acknowledge the necessity of masks, even if they don't like wearing it. But people like this really show how stupid Americans can be sometimes. I mean, you are nothing like George Floyd to even compare your activism, quote-unquote activism, to George Floyd. It just, it's a level of delusion, privilege, and just stupidity that, I mean, I, I'm not going to say I didn't think it was possible. I knew it was possible, but you just don't expect to see as common as we see it. But it's pretty common, unfortunately. In 2020 America. Real life version of idiocracy, folks. So many of you already know that Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling has gone full mask off. And she is a turf, And she's loud and uh, proud about it. She hates trans people. She wants you to know she hates trans people. And she uh, will tweet about it constantly, nonstop. But she's taking her hatred of trans people to the next level to, I guess, prove how much of a threat they pose to women because we got this article from Pink News that uh, shines a light on her next effort to demonize trans people. Quote, J.K. Rowling's latest book is about a murderous cis man who dresses as a woman to kill his victims. We get it. You hate trans people, but you have millions upon millions of dollars. Do you really think they pose this big of a threat to you? For whatever, like, threat that you believe they pose to women which is no threat but for whatever threat that you believe they actually pose what's more of a threat you demonizing them and antagonizing this vulnerable community drumming up hatred and possibly encouraging people to do violence against them or the threat that they pose like if anyone's in danger here it's because of what you're doing you're getting people to hate trans people you're getting people to think that trans people pose a threat to them and pose a threat to women in particular like this is literally indistinguishable from what we see republicans doing they create this bathroom predator myth so that way we deny rights to trans people and what does this end up doing it makes it seem like trans people are this villain and we have to take action to protect against these trans people who are just preying on women it's just downright disturbing and, you know, for whatever you want to say with regard to cancel culture, 
J.K. Rowling should be canceled because of this, and I'm not afraid to say that. So the article goes on to explain, The first review for Troubled Blood describes it as a book whose moral seems to be never trust a man in a dress. According to The Telegraph, the meat of the 900-page novel is an investigation into a cold case, the disappearance of a woman in 1974 believed to be a victim of a cis male serial killer whose modus operandi is dressing as a woman. The second in the series, The Silkworm, has previously been criticized over its depiction of a trans character described as un unstable and aggressive. Yeah, so this is disgusting. It's disturbing. Because it's not like she's just like trying to create a story and, you know, one of the characters just so happened to be a trans person. Like she is trying to whip people into a frenzy and get them them to think that men who wear wigs, you know, that is just a cause for concern. Because she doesn't actually believe that trans women are women. So to her, they pose a threat to you. And, you know, since this bathroom predator myth doesn't actually bear out in reality, like since trans people aren't actually a threat to cis people or to women, um, she's trying to, like, prove that they're a threat by getting her fears to be projected onto the pages of this book so people kind of realize, oh, wow, maybe I should be afraid of trans people. Or according to them, uh, men in wigs men who dress up as women because that's what trans people are to jk rowling like it's just this disgusting she's a despicable human being she's a piece of shit uh and you know for how much money she has you'd think that she'd be concerned with other things rather than trying to make the lives of trans people hell when it's already hell but i mean uh, this is someone who is just a disgusting human being i think that uh someone on twitter put it best that she called Jeremy Corbyn a hateful individual, and here she is publishing this book where she is demonizing trans people. And again, it's not like, oh, well, she's just trying to tell a story. We know what she's trying to do. This is her anti-trans agenda in an art form. Yeah, well, fuck your art and fuck your books. You're a terrible person. Joe Biden currently, according to public opinion polls, is in a really solid position. He is uh, looking more and more likely to defeat Donald Trump. So there was a little bit of controversy around a Washington Post article where Bernie Sanders allegedly kind of sounded the alarm about Biden's chances, right, and poured cold water over everyone's hopes and dreams about Donald Trump getting defeated because he's saying that, you know, if Joe Biden runs his campaign as a centrist, it's not a foregone conclusion that he's going to win. Now, in an interview with Ali Velshi on MSNBC, Bernie Sanders actually denied having said this, but then he kind of goes on to confirm that he is concerned with Joe Biden's chances. So take a look and then I'll tell you what I think about this afterwards. With just 51 days until Election Day, this weekend reports uh, emerged of a potential rift between Democrats. The Washington Post reporting that Democratic primary runner-up Bernie Sanders has expressed his concerns privately uh, over the Biden camp's approach to financial uh, or economic policy matters and their appeal to more progressive voters. Sanders, the independent Vermont senator, quote, has told associates that Biden is at serious risk of coming up short in the November elections if he continues his vaguer, more centrist approach, according to the people who spoke on on the con condition of anonymity to describe sensitive talks. Senator Bernie Sanders joins me now. Good morning, Senator. Good to see you. Thank you for uh, joining me. You've obviously seen these reports. Uh, are they true? No, of course they're not true. I mean, look, what I have said privately is what I have said publicly. And that is, um, I think Biden's in an excellent position to win this election. Uh, but 
I think we've got to do more as a campaign than just uh, go after Trump. Trump is a disaster. I think most people know it. But we also have to give people a reason to vote for Joe Biden. And Joe has some pretty strong positions on the economy. Uh, and I think we should be talking about that more than we have. Now, we have done, Ali, <clears throat> eight battleground state uh, battleground states virtual rallies talking to, you know, uh, several million people. Uh, and I think what people want to hear is what Joe is going to do to raise the minimum wage. And he supports <clears throat> a $15 an hour minimum wage. What he's going to do to make sure that we create millions of good paying jobs in this country. And he has a very strong plan for the infrastructure. He knows that we can create jobs uh, combating climate change, which God knows uh, we need to do, seeing what's going on in the West Coast right now. Uh, they want equal pay for equal work. They want us to expand health care to as many people as possible, lower the cost of prescription drugs. I think those are some of the issues that people want to hear a little bit more from the Biden campaign about. So this is interesting to me because Bernie Sanders denied the report from the Washington Post, but then he kind of inadvertently confirmed that the report is true because he says, you know, Joe Biden is in a position to beat Donald Trump, but at the same time, we've got to do more as a campaign than go after Donald Trump. We've got to give people a reason to vote for Joe Biden. And then he lists policy positions that Joe Biden supposedly supports but never talks about. The fact that you have to make that caveat tells me that the report is actually probably accurate. Now, I don't necessarily trust the Washington Post too much, but what Bernie Sanders allegedly said, like the concerns that he raised, it sounds like something Bernie Sanders said, but I think that he wants to walk back that supposed criticism because whenever you bring up something that Joe Biden does that is bad, even if it's strategically, you are immediately lambasted by centrists because it's basically seen as a tacit endorsement of Donald Trump. Like, you have to just pretend like Joe Biden is perfect, never say that he's done anything wrong, he's never made a strategic error, everything he's doing is perfect, and that's that. Shut the fuck up. Come on, man. If you actually do want to win, you should listen to constructive criticism, especially from people like Bernie Sanders, who are good faith actors, who wants Joe Biden to win. And if you don't criticize Joe Biden, then it's not us that are helping Donald Trump. You are the one that's helping Donald Trump. Because if you just pretend as if everything is peachy keen and Joe Biden is perfect in spite of polls, then you are getting complacent and you may hand Donald Trump another victory. I mean, polls right now show that Joe Biden is a, in a good spot, right? So I wouldn't necessarily say he needs to change too much. I mean, I'd love for him to talk about policy, but I mean, he's doing okay right now. But if you want to appeal to a broader coalition of people, get young voters excited, then I think that you should listen to the feedback of people from the left, especially Bernie Sanders. Who cares? He's popular, right? He knows what he's saying. He knows what he's doing. He wants what's best for Joe Biden's campaign. So for people to like criticize Bernie Sanders over this, it's irritating to me. Like, to just sit on your criticism of Joe Biden is deeply disingenuous, right? It's lying by omission because Joe Biden has fucked up left and right. He just called for an increase to military spending. On top of that, he told Wall Street donors in a phone call that he's not going to impose any new legislative uh, regulatory measures. And one of the worst things he's done is he flaunted the endorsement of criminal Governor Mitch Schneider of Michigan, who poisoned 100,000 residents of Flint. I mean, 
for him to go so far to court Republicans that you boast about the endorsement you received from someone who should be in jail, if we don't call that out, we're helping Donald Trump. Like, if you truly want to defeat Donald Trump, then you have to listen to criticism because Hillary Clinton was supposedly untouchable and it was blasphemy whenever we criticized her back in 2016, but she lost. She lost. Now, I'm not saying the same is going to be true for Joe Biden, but I am concerned with the way that Joe Biden is running his campaign because there's not really much policies. There's not much policies. He is talking about how bad Donald Trump is, and I think he's hitting Donald Trump where it matters, specifically COVID-19. That's important. But again, you still have to offer voters something. Now, maybe just being anti-Trump will be enough this time. But again, for Bernie Sanders to walk back, you know, what he supposedly said about Joe Biden's campaign and the concern that he raised, according to the Washington Post, um, you know, I think that he thinks that he's going to look like the good guy. But it's not it's not really helping like Joe Biden should be taking your advice. He should be taking your concerns seriously and he should run a more substantive campaign like they don't know like they're clearly lost. Right. They don't know how to appeal to young voters. A strategist is trying to position Joe Biden as like one of the Democratic Avengers. They're, you know, trying to give people QR codes that they can scan into Animal Crossing so they can put up Biden-Harris yard signs on their Animal Crossing islands. This isn't the way to do it. So if you genuinely want to win these people over, then you have to listen. You can't just plug your ears because you feel cognitive dissonance whenever somebody criticizes Joe Biden. I mean... It's not an endorsement of Donald Trump to criticize Joe Biden. It's logical to criticize Joe Biden. It's objectivity to criticize Joe Biden because he needs to be criticized because he is, you know, in a good position now, but that can change. And so you have to build the biggest coalition possible if you actually want to defeat Donald Trump. But what am I saying? Centrists know everything. The Democratic Party, they, you know, in spite of losing a thousand seats in legislatures across the country, they know more than all of us. So we just have to shut the fuck up. Let them appeal to moderate Republicans, and, you know, if we criticize them, then we support Donald Trump. That's the way that it's been, and that's the way that it's going to be because they don't want our input because they seem to not really care about courting Bernie Sanders supporters in the left. So, you know, I hope that the strategy plays out for them, but don't you want, like, the biggest coalition imaginable? Don't you think that the policies that he already supports, it makes sense to actually promote them more, like a $15 minimum wage? Like, this is literally a life-changing policy. This is a raise for the working class, and Joe Biden never talks about it. Like, it's not a bad thing to say, hey, maybe you should talk about these policies that you supposedly support. But whatever. I mean, he's in the lead right now. So, you know, they're kind of justified in saying this. But back when, you know, his numbers were starting to go down a little bit, especially in swing states, it still was blasphemy to criticize Joe Biden. So you can't really win if you point out his flaws that are obvious um, and you say, hey, you have to do X, Y and Z to win over non-voters. You are supporting Donald Trump. So, I mean, whatever. Um, it's a dangerous game that you're playing. But nonetheless, I'm not going to bite my tongue. I'm going to be critical of Joe Biden where it's warranted. And I think that, like, flaunting the endorsement of a criminal governor who poisoned 100,000 people in Flint, Michigan, that's something that we should definitely criticize. I think we have an obligation to criticize it if we're actually moral human beings. So, Trump sat down for a town hall with George Stephanopoulos on ABC News and Watching it all the way through, it really made me wonder whether or not Donald Trump ate lots and lots of paint chips as a child, because it's not just like he's lying repeatedly and um, sounds stupid, because both of those things are true, but like he says things specifically that make me wonder if he's like, 
delusional. He seems like he's not all there. Uh, but before we talk about the specifics, I just want to point out how much I love this picture. It might be a little bit grainy, but like it looks like George Stephanopoulos is terrified. And I don't know why Donald Trump is doing like the thumb point, but look at how much space there is between these two. And he just looks absolutely fearful for his life. And uh, I can't say I blame him because Trump is really weird. Um, and this this town hall really proves it. So um, let's start with a couple of short clips. So just last week, we got confirmation from the Bob Woodward tapes that Donald Trump did, in fact, know about the severity of COVID-19 while he was publicly downplaying it. And on tape, he admitted that he was trying to downplay it so he wouldn't cause a panic. But then at this town hall, when somebody asked, why would you want to downplay it? Um, he says, I never downplayed it. Why would you downplay a pandemic that is known to disproportionately harm low-income families and minority communities? Yeah. Well, I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. Oh, okay. So I guess that we'll just pretend like the tapes that we all listened to last week aren't real because you say so. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. You are on tape admitting that you downplayed it and you wanted to downplay it to not cause a panic. So why are you now saying that you didn't downplay it? Like, it's like me saying I don't wear glasses, but you can see me wearing glasses. They're on my face right now. I can touch them. They're here, but I just deny it. Nope, I'm not wearing glasses. You'd think I was delusional, right? You'd think that I'm not living in the reality, in the real world that everyone else lives in. Well, I mean, that's the sense that I got from this town hall. Now, Donald Trump was asked why he won't support a national mask mandate, and his response was incoherent, of course, but he ended up blaming Joe Biden for not instituting a nationwide mask mandate. Let me remind you, Joe Biden is not the president, but nonetheless, that didn't stop Donald Trump from blaming him, someone who currently doesn't have power, from uh, not taking action. They said at the Democrat convention, they're going to do a national mandate. They never did it because they've checked out and they didn't do it. And a, qu a good question is you ask, like Joe Biden, they said, we're going to do a ma national mandate on masks. He's called on convention. all governors to have them. It is a state well, responsibility. Well, no, but he, he didn't do it. I mean, he never did it. Now, uh, there is, by the way, a lot of people don't want to wear masks. There are a lot of people think the masks are not good. And there are a lot of people that, as an example, who you have- Who are those people? I'll tell you who those people are. Waiters, they come over and they serve you and they have a mask. And I saw it the other day where they were serving me. And they're playing with a mask. I'm not blaming them, I'm just saying what happens. They're playing with a mask, so the mask is over and they're touching it and, put, and then they're touching the plate. That can't be good. <sighs> so he literally is implying now that wearing a mask might actually be more dangerous. Great message to have the president send right now. Um, and on top of that, he blames Joe Biden for not instituting a national mask mandate. What do you want Joe Biden to do? I mean, the RNC chairwoman just last week, Ronna McDaniel, also accused Joe Biden of uh, bungling COVID-19 by saying something to the effect of, uh, you can't run from your disastrous record. Donald Trump is the president right now. You are the one with power. So why would we expect Joe Biden to institute some sort of nationwide mask mandate do you expect him to try to sign it into law what are you expecting like the things that he says are fucking stupid like you're not all there like you had to have eaten 
a lot of paint chips as a child or just like drank buckets and buckets of paint because you are a very stupid person. And it's like, I can't just say, oh, he's lying. I can't say he's just stupid because that doesn't necessarily suffice. Like it goes deeper than that. Like he's delusional. He is not all there. But if you think that was weird, him uh, criticizing Joe Biden for not taking action on a mask mandate, uh, listen to what he says about the military. Our military, when I came into this great office, our military was depleted. It was in the worst shape it was in probably ever. It was depleted. The planes were old and broken, the ships, everything. You see what I've done. I've rebuilt $2.5 trillion. And you think that was easy getting that money from Democrats? Because they don't like the military. You mean the same Democratic Party who consistently votes to increase the military budget? Are we talking about the same Democratic Party who just a month ago, uh, they voted down even a 10% cut to military spending? Is that the same Democratic Party we're talking about here? Because it seems like his perception of the Democratic Party is much different than what's happening in reality. The Democratic Party... They aren't doves anymore. The Democratic Party, they are hawkish. They expand the military. And what you are saying about it being depleted, it doesn't just sound factually incorrect. It's so wrong that it makes you sound like a fucking stupid person. Because how bad was the military when Donald Trump took office? Well, let's look at these phenomenal graphs provided to us by the brilliant Andrea Witte of ConnectedThoughtsUSA.com. Well, as you can see here, military spending reached its highest point since the Cold War during the Obama years. And on top of that, we spend more on the military than the next nine countries combined, most of which are our allies. And on top of that, we have hundreds and hundreds of military bases around the world. So to say that the military was depleted when you took office is a lie that's so outrageous that it would be more believable if you told us that there was a reptilian body underneath the orange skin that you're wearing like that is how insane it is nobody believes that the military was depleted because we have the largest military in the history of the world and you're telling us that when you took office it was depleted it was gone i mean nobody believes this even republicans do not believe this unless they are very stupid but this is just it's factually incorrect and it's laughable at its face. But on top of that, uh, healthcare came up. And of course, we know that he just nailed it, right? Uh, no, of course not. He was babbling. You know, he repeated himself multiple times. He was incoherent. But one lady, before we get to like the general conversation about healthcare, she asked him about protections for patients with pre existing conditions. And he brought up socialized medicine, Medicare for all, and not only claimed that Joe Biden supports Medicare for all, which I wish that were true, but it's not, but he claimed that under a socialized healthcare system, that is what would actually lead to discrimination against patients with pre-existing conditions. He claimed this with a straight face. And we are not going to hurt anything having to do with pre-existing conditions. We're not going to hurt pre-existing conditions. And in fact, just the opposite. If you look at what they want to do, where they have socialized medicine, they will get rid of pre-existing conditions. If they go into Medicare for all, which is socialized medicine, and you can forget about your doctors and your plans, just like you could forget under President Obama. He said you can have your doctor, you can have your plan, and that turned out to be a lie. That might be the dumbest thing he said at this town hall. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. So you're telling me that private companies are going to discriminate against patients with pre-existing conditions under a single-payer healthcare system? That's not possible because the entire point of a single-payer healthcare system is to have the government be the sole insurance provider for all of Americans. 
So when we're talking about patients with pre-existing conditions, that's only a thing when we're discussing a private healthcare system because it's these private insurance companies that don't want to pay for these patients that have pre-existing conditions because it's costly. But if you have a single-payer system and you have everyone into the same health pool, then even the young and the healthy are subsidizing the healthcare, which is more costly for the elderly and the sick. So to say that there will be discrimination against patients with pre-existing conditions under a single-payer system, it's nonsensical. Like unless the government itself is going to carve out exemptions for people with cancer or something, then that wouldn't be possible. But in other single-payer countries like Canada, we don't see that as a thing. Now, you can say that maybe, you know, coverage won't be comprehensive if we one day get a single-payer system, depending on who writes the bill. But still, to say that, it's just, it, it's idiotic. Now, George Stephanopoulos, you know, probably acknowledging that he's in over his head and doesn't really know what he's talking about here, challenged him for the bevy of lies that he told and tried to get him to explain why he still won't propose his own healthcare plan. And this just made him look completely foolish. I have George, to stop they you have there. Socialized I, I just have to stop you there, because it's just on a couple of points. Number one, Joe Biden has ran against Medicare for all in the primaries. But much more importantly, Obamacare guaranteed people with pre-existing conditions could buy insurance, guaranteed they could buy it at the same price as everyone else, guaranteed a package of essential benefits, guaranteed that insurance companies couldn't put a lifetime limit on those benefits. You fought to repeal Obamacare. You are arguing well, I essentially did. You, you are you're arguing the, the Supreme men. Court right now to strike it down. That would do away with pre existing no, conditions. So you've that we promised, can do new health care. But you've been promising a new health care plan. We interviewed I interviewed you in June of last year. You said the health care plan would come in two weeks. You told Chris Wallace that this summer it would come in three weeks. You promised an executive order on pre existing I have it already. But it's you've been trying to strike down pre existing conditions. I have it already and it's a much better plan for you and it's a much better plan and what is when it? you say Obamacare I got rid of the individual mandate which is the worst part of Obamacare you're striking you down the whole law wouldn't be pertain to you but it pertained to a lot of people where they were going literally bust because they didn't want to have health insurance and they were paying for it anyway and it was no good Obamacare was a disaster Obamacare is too expensive the premiums are too high it's a total disaster you're going to have new health care and the pre-existing condition aspect of it will always be in my plan. And I've said that loud and clear. But and you haven't true. come up with it. And it's almost like the Republicans don't have their own health care plan because the Affordable Care Act was their health care plan. The Affordable Care Act was a neoliberal market-based approach to health care reform. But because Democrats did it, then they have to say it's bad. They have to pretend as if they don't like it when that private insurance-based model of health care is exactly what they want. It's what the Heritage Foundation proposed. It's what Mitt Romney did as governor. Uh, so, I mean, it's stupid. And something else he said made me scratch my head. So he's arguing that the reason why he has to strike down the Affordable Care Act in court, which also would get rid of protections for patients with pre-existing conditions, is because he wants to do new health care. He's trying to strike that down so he can do new health care. I don't even know what that means. That doesn't even make sense. Are you saying that in order for you to pass a new health care law, you have to repeal the last one? Can't you build on it? Like if you want to keep protections for patients with pre-existing conditions, can't you just like repeal the other elements of the ACA and then build off of what you like? You don't have to get rid of one bill to do another one. Like this doesn't even make sense. He doesn't even know how the legislative process works. And it's because he uh, wants to get rid of 
protections for patients with pre-existing conditions. Otherwise, you already hollowed out the Affordable Care Act, so why try to kill it in its entirety unless you're trying to kill those protections and deliver for your health industry donors who don't like paying for patients with pre-existing conditions and want to discriminate against them because they're high risk. It costs them more money to cover them. Um, on top of that, he says, I got rid of the individual mandate, which is the worst part of Obamacare. Again, if you are a neoliberal, if you're a capitalist like Donald Trump is, that doesn't make sense. Because in order to make the Affordable Care Act work, you need the individual mandate. That's the crux of it, right? That forces people to buy healthcare on the private market. There's nothing that insurance companies love more. If people are forced to buy insurance that keeps costs down for everyone else in theory because it forces the young and the healthy to subsidize the healthcare of the old and the unhealthy. But when young people and healthy people don't buy healthcare and you get rid of that individual mandate, what happens? Prices go up because insurance companies don't make as much money and they have to cover people who tend to cost more money, who require more healthcare. And in order to recoup the profits that they're losing, health insurance companies raise the prices, hence why you force everyone to buy into it so it's cheaper all around. But without the individual mandate, the way that you get people to buy insurance who otherwise wouldn't, such as young people and healthy people, is you lure them in. You basically dangle some shitty cheap plan over their heads and say, hey, this will provide you with basic care. Now, if there's a disaster, they're fucked. But it gives you a couple of things that you can do. Maybe it lowers the cost of your prescription drugs. You can see your doctor occasionally. But overall, it's not actually adequate insurance. If they really need to have surgery or something, they're shit out of luck. And this is kind of what the ACA did away with. It got rid of these types of plans that are skinny plans because they're effectively... They're scamming people, right? But that's what Trump wants to do. In order to help the insurance companies make more money, he is going to allow them to basically scam people, I mean, I don't know how else to explain it, and sell them these shitty plans that aren't worth a damn. Because, I mean, if you want a free market-based healthcare solution, which he does, how else are you going to do it? You have to have things like the individual mandate, or you have to allow the private insurance companies to basically scam people. Like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like, you can't have good healthcare reform if you're only approaching it through this free market angle like just do medicare for all and all of this goes away people would love you instantly it's incredibly popular but donald trump is corrupt he'd never do that his health industry donors would never allow him to do that now this last clip that i want to play for you this was a disaster for donald trump because someone finally asked him to clarify what he means by make america great again at what time was america great for black americans for example and he was stumped. He had no idea how to answer this, and it was honestly painful to watch. Uh, you've coined the phrase, make America great again. Right. When has America been great for African-Americans in the ghetto of America? Are you aware of how tone deaf that comes off to African-American community? Well, I can say this. We have tremendous African-American support. You've probably seen it in the polls. We're doing extremely well with uh, African-American, Hispanic-American at levels that you've rarely seen a Republican have. Uh, if you talk about Make America Great, uh, if you look at just prior to, and I'm talking about for the black community, you look just prior to this horrible situation coming in from China, when the virus came in, that was the probably the highest point, home ownership for the black community. Home ownership, uh, lower crime, the best jobs they've ever had, highest income, the best employment numbers they've ever had. If you go back and you want to look over many years, 
You could just go back six or seven months from now. That was the best single moment in the history of the African-American people in this country, I think, you know, I would say. Well, I mean, your statement is, though, make it great again. So historically, uh, the African-American experience, especially in these, out of these ghettos that have been out of red line, uh, historically, these ghettos that have systemically been set yes, up and treated yes. the way that they have been, the conditions of the drugs, the guns, and everything else that actually created the symptoms yeah. for what we see uh, that you uh, profess to be just the democratic cities in themselves, uh, these things have historically been happening for African-Americans in these ghettos, and we have not been seeing uh, a change. Uh, quite frankly, under your administration, under the Obama's administration, under the Bush, under the Clinton, the very same things happen and the very same systems and cycles continue to, to continue to ensue. And we need to see, because uh, you say again, we need to see when was that great? Because that pushes us back to a time in which we cannot identify with such greatness. And I mean, you've said everything else about choking and everything else, but you have yet to address and acknowledge okay. that there's been a race problem in America. So if you go, well, I hope there's not a race problem. I can tell you there's none with me because I have great respect for all races, for everybody. This country is great because of it. But when you go back six months and you take a look at what was happening, you can't even compare that with past administrations. When you look at income levels and a lot of things because of the job situation where they had the lowest income, the best, the best unemployment numbers they've ever had, the black community by far. And that was solving a lot of problems. And you know what else it was? It was bringing people together. I was starting to get, just before this was, you know, we were having a long run of success. I was starting to get calls from Democrats that, hey, it's starting to work. Let's get together. People that you would never have thought this would have happened with. There was going to be unity. But unfortunately, that was hurt because we got set back. Yeah, but I'm now... I think next year is going to be one of our best years economically. But, in, but income equality is still happen. But in, income equality is higher. So I mean, jobs can be produced, but at the same time, in a lot of these big major cities where African Americans are underserved, under-resourced, that's an eight dollar eight dollar hour job. Does not mean that they can necessarily afford to live where they have to live or where they've been living at for the last twenty years. Well, the income inequality, which I agree with you, is a problem. I always agreed with that. But if you look under President Obama and Biden, the income inequality was phenomenal. It was it was record setting. It was it was. It's terrible. getting worse now. Okay, that guy who asked the question, he should have been the one hosting the town hall. If any pundit or journalist in America asked Donald Trump questions that are that comprehensive and sophisticated and actually pressed him, I mean, we'd be in better shape because politicians are never held to account in that way. So kudos to him. Uh, so he followed up with Donald Trump after Donald Trump did not answer the question. Um... And he says, you haven't acknowledged or addressed the race problem in America. And Donald Trump said in response, well, I hope there's not a race problem. Oh, that, that was bad. Oof, that's a yikes moment. I hope there's not a race problem in America. How out of touch and tone deaf can you be? You're bragging about how incredible your administration has been for black America, you do that all the time, but yet you're saying, I hope there's no race problem in America. Oh, well, gee, we all hope so, but that's not the reality. And you wonder why black people don't support you. I mean, he thinks they do. I guess like six or 8% is something to brag about, but um, this is why, because you are a complete fucking moron. 
you hope there's not a race problem in America? Jesus Christ. Now, he always responds, like, when he's asked, like, a question about race, he brings up how black unemployment was the lowest ever, but that guy made the phenomenal point that these are not jobs that pay a living wage. They're $8 an hour jobs, and we still can't afford rent. Trump had no idea how to respond to that, because how do you respond to that? You're bragging about jobs, but just having jobs in general isn't inherently good. Like, are these jobs paying you a living wage? Can you make the rent each month and put food on the table with these jobs? Like, it's an out-of-touch, elitist thing to say. It's classist to say, oh, well, you know, you're, you have a job, so be happy. No, that doesn't mean that you're going to have everything you need just because you have a job. You haven't raised the minimum wage. Back in 2015 and 2016, you said that wages were too high. So, I mean, just having a job in and of itself doesn't mean that your quality of life is going to improve. And I shouldn't have to explain this to Donald Trump, but he's an imbecile. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, so he has no idea what it's like to struggle. But he then says, but if you look under President Obama and Biden, the income inequality was phenomenal. It was record-setting. So I'm pretty sure that he misspoke and said the opposite of what he wanted to say, but it was phenomenal. It's really clear, even though he misspoke, he's never really thought deeply about the issue of income and wealth inequality. So this town hall was a disaster for Donald Trump. And it's funny because Laura Ingram afterwards was complaining about how he was bombarded with all of these questions. You're the president of the United States. If you can't take questions about issues that affect Americans, then you shouldn't be president. Step down, resign. But I mean, Donald Trump... He doesn't know. Like, he's in over his head. He doesn't want to be president because he wants to help people. He wants to be president because he loves the power. He loves the attention. I don't ever believe he wanted to be president in the first place. Like, he launched his presidential bid in 2015, I think, anyways, to launch a television career. There were reports that he didn't actually want to be president. So, I mean, like, you don't want to be the president. And um, <sighs> you can see there because, you know, there's there's no intellectual curiosity there when it comes to any of these issues. He doesn't even know how to respond to these is issues. And like, it's clear based on his answers to some of these issues that he hasn't even thought about these things for a second, like race in America, income inequality. It's just, it's embarrassing. This is the president of the United States. And we have so many issues that need to be addressed. So many crises that have to be addressed. And we have this dipshit who's president. It's like we live in the movie Idiocracy. So this next story that we're going to talk about now, it um, it kind of makes me want to kill myself. <laughs> because it's so stupid, like you'd think it's a parody, but it's real because of course it is. So because we live in a late stage capitalist society, you know, the concern with income and wealth inequality, at least among the ruling class, isn't that, you know, working class people have so little as a direct result of them having so much. No, what they're concerned with, of course, is themselves. They're concerned that um, there is now discrimination against them, them being rich people, elites, the ruling class. Yes, Discrimination and uh, prejudice, if you will, against rich people is now a thing that rich people have introduced into the world. And one rich person in particular is taking this victim complex, this persecution complex to the next level because she decided to write an entire book about 
How Bad It Is to Be a Rich Person, titled We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. And in this book, as the New York Post explains, she is going to talk about how hard it is to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, Jan. Okay, well, hey, um, I hope that rich people are watching this because I'm going to solve all of your problems right now. There's a really easy solution. Just give away all of your wealth. Stop being rich. Poor people can't stop being poor in spite of how difficult it is to be poor. So you can just stop being rich. Give away everything you own. We know that it's not that difficult to be rich. In fact, we know... I know that you know that it's actually really nice to be rich because if it were so difficult to be rich, as difficult as you say it is, you would not be rich. You would give away your money and live more frugally. But because you have the wealth, now you want everyone else, as they have less and less, to think of you as more of a victim. Well, no, I'm sorry. Whatever problems you have as a rich person, it's not as bad because you have wealth. The insecurities that you may feel as a human being, those may still exist if you have money, but you also have money, so that therefore will make your life better. I mean, poor people have all of these same things. It's not like we're saying that you having money automatically means you're going to have a perfect life, but does it make your life better? Damn right it does. And we know it does because that's why you have so much money. If being rich was so difficult, then we wouldn't have rich people. They would give away all of their money if there was so much discrimination against them. But because people are flaunting their wealth so frequently in our late-stage capitalist society, um, it's not that bad to be rich. Not only are you able to consume until your heart's content, but you also are protected from the incoming climate catastrophe. If you live in a community where your drinking water is poisoned with lead pipes, you can just move. Literally, it's that easy. So, I mean, you have protection, you can have fun and do whatever you want, but apparently I don't know what I'm talking about because it's really difficult to be rich. So the New York Post put together a, a video where she kind of broke it down. She gave us the Cliff Notes version of her book, and uh, this is pretty insufferable. When I was 25, I took a job at Microsoft and got really lucky. I met my husband, David, and the stock options I was granted were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Six years later, when David joined a small, unknown startup called Amazon.com, I got lucky again. We both did. The company went public, we were in our early 30s, and we had tens of millions of dollars. Life must have been great, right? But soon I learned that millions of dollars doesn't have the power to change everything. My days weren't perfect. I was still me. I hadn't escaped my worries or insecurities. My feelings still got hurt. More than that, my identity and place in the world were at stake. People looked at me differently. After growing up with middle-class values, saving my pennies, wary of the rich, I was embarrassed. Over the last decades, I've worried about spoiling our children. I've been shocked to have friends ask for $25,000, and I've discovered that philanthropy isn't as straightforward as just writing a check. No one discusses these doubts and dilemmas, but there are millions of Americans like me. By the end of 2016, 11 million U.S. households had a net worth of a million dollars. And that's not including their homes. The numbers are growing, too. By the end of 2017, the number of millionaire households had increased by over 600,000. And most with wealth are new to the experience. 
eight out of ten grew up middle class or poor. Many books offer advice on how to get rich. Some inspire us with a fantasy of being rich. Others poke fun at the rich. For the first time, We Need to Talk offers an honest look at what it's really like to be rich. I'm not an economist or a politician. I'm not some poor little rich girl either. I'm telling my story to get us talking. And I interviewed 11 women and included their voices to offer different perspectives. We're learning to talk about gender, race, and sexual orientation. I hope to help us learn to talk about money, too. Conversations bring us together. Silence perpetuates divides and keeps us stuck in an us-versus-them mindset. When we need to remember what is fundamental, we're all 99% the same. Are you serious? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> this lady can't be serious. Wow. Wow. I hate her so much. <laughs> if she sees this, which she won't, but if she sees this, she's going to say, he's proving my point. Um, yeah, I hope you're discriminated against. I hope that people um, make fun of you for being rich. <laughs> Because fuck you. Like, in case you missed it at the end, she literally compared gender, sexual orientation, and race to being wealthy. As if being wealthy makes you similarly situated to a marginalized community. As if being rich lends to a life of discrimination comparable to being a black American. Oh my god. Oh my god. This lady is delusional. Now, a couple things she said stood out to me. She said, I hadn't escaped my worries or insecurities. My feelings still got hurt. Well, it's not like being rich is going to shield you from, um, you know, getting your feelings hurt. You're still a human being, obviously, but we also have these same feelings of emotion. It's just the difference is that you have a lot of money to make you feel a lot better, right? So if your feelings get hurt, you can, uh, I don't know, go on a vacation as long as you want to. You can stop working for the rest of your life if your feelings get hurt, whereas the working class, they don't have that luxury. So it's not like we're saying, oh, well, you're a robot and all of your problems as an individual human being are solved if you're rich. Nobody's alleging that. But what we're saying is that all of the struggles of everyday life are not as big of an issue if you are rich, if you have that money, because obviously uh she also said over the last decade i've been worried about spoiling my children oh well god you know i was really feeling bad for the parents of children who live in flint michigan who haven't had clean drinking water in like five years but you having to worry about spoiling your children too much that really is a bigger issue i mean it must be so difficult to try to determine whether or not you're going to give your kids a twenty-five thousand dollar a month allowance or a thirty thousand dollar a month allowance i mean that must be such a difficult decision. I can't imagine what you're going through. Oh, now, obviously, in that video, she didn't specifically establish why it's so difficult to be rich, because it's not. But the article kind of um, explores this a little bit further. 
Um, and I want to get into that because there's some gems in this article as well. So as the New York Post's Kirsten Fleming writes, being extremely wealthy isn't the carefree, champagne-soaked free-for-all you might imagine it to be, at least according to Jennifer Risher. She and her husband, David, earned tens of millions of dollars in the tech world before the ages of 35 and suddenly found themselves in an elite tax bracket without a manual on how to navigate the potential pitfalls of isolation and strained social relationships. We see wealth from a really narrow perspective, the glitz, the glamour, and the greed, but we don't see the reality Risher, 55, told The Post. Money is a taboo subject, but it really shouldn't be. The mother of two calls her new book a coming out as rich. <laughs> what the fuck? something she had previously struggled with oh you poor thing uh but while she shied away from talking about it she learned to embrace excess oh i bet including private jets a lavish wardrobe makeover and a second home in the napa valley still risher who grew up with frugal parents began worrying about the impact money was having on her children the family started flying commercial with our six-year-old wondering if we were taking a private jet and our four-year-old questioning whether we were flying it or national first class, I believe something had to change, she writes. Wealth also complicated her social life and family relationships until she learned to open up. One friend almost didn't invite her family to her Cirque du Soleil show because the pal worried they'd only be happy with front row seats. That shocked me, and I felt so horrible for her to think about the finances. Her friendship meant more to me than front row seats. <laughs> is so stupid. That conversation also made me more aware of how out of touch I could be, said Risher. A yearly gift of $20,000 she had given to her brother also created ill feelings. She felt... <laughs> This is so stupid. She also felt he was unappreciative, but she later learned he simply felt awkward. We were able to connect as two people who loved and trusted one another. Risher believes it's more important than ever for the rich to start talking about money. Our silence keeps the status quo in place and keeps us from examining our relationship with money. It keeps us in our bubble and unaware. It keeps us stuck in that us versus them mindset, she said. Still, to this day i drive around the block looking for free parking said risher i will say come on just park in a lot or pay an atm fee it takes a conscious shift to remind myself wow well you know i'm sure that all of the poor people in that area really appreciate you taking up one of the few free parking spaces available so you can feel more humble <laughs> this is insane this is insane. So your pitch to us is that it's hard to be rich. Here are the issues. And this is exactly what I would expect. The only like issues rich people deal with would be. Oh, well, you know, I gave my brother $20,000 and he didn't seem appreciative, but it was awkward. I mean, what do you want him to do? $20,000 to a multimillionaire is nothing like do you want him to get on the floor and kiss your feet what do you want him to do like have some perspective that's so weird um now what i love is that she's so out of touch she claims that if rich people don't open up and talk about their uh wealth and being rich um 
it keeps us in our bubble and unaware. So understand what she's saying here. In order to not be in a rich person bubble, she has to open up and talk about her rich. She has to rich explain to us what it's like to be rich. That's going to keep her out of her bubble. That's going to keep her humble. Not actually like socializing with people who are on the lower brackets uh, on the income ladder, like not actually talking to the peasants. It's her talking at us about how difficult it is for her to be rich. That's what's going to keep her out of her bubble. Lady, you're delusional. And she literally is like co-opting the language of social justice to apply it to her lifestyle as a millionaire, saying how difficult it was for her to come out. Oh, well, I mean, I can only imagine. Look, when I told my family I was gay, uh, I was told uh, that I was a faggot and to kill myself, but I'm pretty sure it was more difficult for you coming out and telling people, hey, everyone, I have millions of dollars. <laughs> what the fuck? This lady is psychopathic. And I love the story about how her friends almost didn't invite her to a Cirque du Soleil show because they were worried that they wouldn't be happy with front row seats. So it's not like they didn't invite you. They did invite you. I mean, I don't know what she's thinking. And her timing is really off. Like at a time when millions of Americans are losing their jobs because of this global pandemic, at a time when we have no idea how many families will be evicted come January 1st, because Trump's moratorium on evictions expires on December 31st. So on January 1st, millions of Americans are going to have to pay months worth of rent. Otherwise, they're going to be evicted. And she's releasing this book now at this time to explain to us how difficult it is to be rich. And she is likening her experience of being rich to the experience of marginalized groups like the LGBTQ community and uh, black people. I mean, if your goal was to prove to us that rich people are just like everyone else, this is not going to help you out with that goal. And in that video, I forgot to mention this, but in the video we talked about earlier, she uh, discussed how in her book she's talking, even though it's a memoir, she's talking to 11 other women. Like, I think that she was trying to get us to give her like a Yas Queen because she's talking to rich women. Uh, but look, I don't care uh, what the identity is of the rich person. Um... Fuck you. Pay your taxes. Stop being so fucking greedy. Stop being so narcissistic and self-centered as you are. And, like, just shut the fuck up. People don't know how to put food on the table. And you're complaining about whether or not you may or may not be spoiling your children. Like, read the room, lady. Read the fucking room. What is wrong with you? Like, this is exactly what you expect from a late-stage capitalist society. Like, rather than actually talking about redistributing wealth, taxing these ghouls, like, we're trying to figure out a way to create some sort of social movement to be more accepting of rich people who have everything. You're not the victim. You're not being discriminated against. And uh, to the extent that you are discriminated against, I think it's good. Uh, because we live in a society where people are encouraged to flaunt their wealth. Like, go to YouTube's trending page and you see, like, a bunch of dickhead influencers, like, with a thumbnail of them and a Lamborghini saying, I just bought my friend a new car or I'm giving away this private island that I chose to buy. I mean, like, this is what we see. Like, people are flaunting their wealth. So, you know, if anything, 
to the extent that rich people are feeling like they should be quiet about their wealth um, at a time when people can't put food on the table and they're losing their jobs, I'd say, yeah, that's probably a good idea. You should probably shut the fuck up right now. And I'm sorry if that makes me uh, bigoted to tell you to shut the fuck up as a rich person. But, uh, I mean, I don't know what you want from me. Who cares? Uh, nobody cares that you are feeling, uh, you know, discriminated against because you're rich. Cry about it. Eat shit, lady. Like, fuck off. After months of delays, the extradition hearing for Julian Assange is finally taking place at the Central Criminal Court in London, and this is really important. This is a big moment for journalism in the United States, because if they actually agree to extradite Julian Assange to the U.S. for prosecution, this is going to set a really, really dangerous precedent. So this is something that everyone should be paying attention to. It just started on Wednesday. So, you know, we don't have all of the details about the case yet. We do know, according to, to the New York Times, that, you know, uh, this was delayed a lot due to COVID-19. And also, you know, it was a digital hearing in a way. I don't know if all of it was digital, but parts of it were digital and it was riddled with errors and whatnot. But in spite of that, there are still people showing up. Uh, there are protesters outside calling on them to not extradite Julian Assange to the U.S. And what's really startling about this case is last year, Julian Assange was in such poor health that doctors actually warned that he could die in jail. Now, I don't know if his health conditions have improved, um, but this is... There's a lot going on, that's all I'll say, and a lot of people just instinctively, they have this, like, knee-jerk reaction whenever they hear Julian Assange because they think, oh, Russia, 2016. What we're talking about here is the United States government trying to prosecute him under the Espionage Act for the Chelsea Manning leaks. Now, the Chelsea Manning leaks exposed war crimes. Julian Assange and WikiLeaks published what Chelsea Manning exposed, and that's why they want to prosecute him. That's why... They're trying to get him extradited to the United States because they don't want journalists exposing the crimes of our government. So if they do this, then this sends a message to other publications. Don't publish our war crimes, otherwise we're going to come after you. Now, thankfully, someone who has a lot of credibility and legitimacy when it comes to whistleblowing, Daniel Ellsberg, is speaking out on behalf of Julian Assange and he penned a letter defending Julian Assange. So as Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams reports, Daniel Ellsberg, who famously leaked the Pentagon Papers exposing U.S. lies and crimes in Southeast Asia, told a British court on Tuesday that the U.S. government is seeking both revenge against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and to crush future whistleblowers with its extradition attempt. Ellsberg's eight-page written statement to the London court considering a U.S. request to extradite Assange was an incisive statement of support for the 49-year-old Australian who has been jailed in the UK since 2019 for avoiding a 2010 international arrest warrant from Sweden for alleged sex offenses. Assange's imprisonment followed a nearly seven-year period of political asylum granted by Ecuador, which agreed he could face political persecution if extradited to Sweden or the US, spent entirely in the South American nation's London embassy. Last year, Nils Melzer, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture, repeatedly called the cumulative effects of the US-Brit 
Britain and Sweden ganging up on Assange, a form of psychological torture. The Trump administration last year formally requested Britain's extradition of Assange under the 1917 Espionage Act and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. U.S. authorities accused him of conspiring to hack government computers and illegally disclosing classified and sensitive national defense information. Critics from both sides of the mainstream political aisle have called Assange's actions reckless. At the height of WikiLeaks revelations, some leading Republicans and Donald Trump called for his execution. However, Ellsberg refuted claims that Assange acted in such a manner, asserting in the court statement that his approach was the exact opposite of reckless and that Assange would not willfully expose others to harm. Ellsberg also noted that very frequently the claim for national security has been erected to obscure illegality and deceit, often on a major scale, and argued that the closest similarities between his and Assange's cases include the manner in which the exposure of illegality and criminal acts institutionally and by individuals was intended to be crushed by the administration carrying out those illegalities. This, Ellsberg argued, is in part in revenge for revealing wrongdoing, as well as an attempt to crush all such future exposure of the truth. I have closely observed the actions of the U.S. government, its military, and its intelligence agency, the CIA, and that the actions in question were never intended to be revealed, including rendition and torture, the use of black sites, and crimes against humanity, wrote Ellsberg. Among the most important documents shared by WikiLeaks were the Afghanistan and Iraq war logs, which revealed war crimes, including mass killing of civilians, extrajudicial killing, torture, corruption, and other crimes and abuses committed by the U.S. and coalition forces and the governments of Afghanistan and Iraq. So this is a really important statement that Daniel Ellsberg released, and I'm really thankful that he did just that, because someone like him has credibility. Someone like him is needed. His voice is crucial here, because what he did wasn't easy. What he did was very difficult and risky. But now we can look back, having hindsight, and see that Daniel Ellsberg was correct to release the Pentagon Papers. So, you know, for him to say this about Julian Assange and how maybe we need more foresight with regard to this case, maybe we're going to make the same mistake and demonize him when in actuality what he did was noble in publishing those uh, those leaks, um, you know, it's important, it's needed. And politicians on both sides of the aisle, as the article uh, pointed out, or Ellsberg's letter pointed out, they kind of seem to be in agreement. Like, I went to a town hall with uh, Jeff Merkley, one of the most progressive senators in uh, the United States. And I asked him about this. I asked him what he could do to stop Donald Trump from prosecuting Julian Assange under the Espionage Act because I was worried about the impact that this would have on journalism and the First Amendment in this country. And when I made that statement, like when I asked him this question, um, people were like audibly sighing when they heard me say Julian Assange because liberals are so like programmed to hate Julian Assange because they link him to WikiLeaks and link WikiLeaks to Russia more specifically, that like it was it was heresy to bring up how this is important and there's a broader issue that could set a really dangerous precedent going forward. And Jeff Merkley's response was dog shit, basically. He just said, well, you know, I'll look into that. I basically got an answer, right? So even the progressives, um, they're not necessarily speaking up about this issue. And that's really, really frustrating because if nobody in power is speaking up, then people who aren't aware of this case taking place because they have a lot of other things going on. I mean, hurricanes, wildfires, uh, COVID-19, 
like they're not going to pay attention. So you have to draw attention to this. So it's really important that lawmakers speak up because this could set a dangerous precedent. Like if he's extradited to the United States and he's prosecuted under the Espionage Act, I mean, imagine what the government will get away with. This sends a message to everyone else. And whenever some other whistleblower wants to come forward, exposing the government's war crimes, a publication is not going to want to publish this because they saw what the U.S. government did to Julian Assange if they, in fact, follow through with this, if he gets extradited, and they're just going to think it's too risky. So then we won't know what abuses of power our government is committing, either at home or abroad. So I really, really hope that he's not extradited. Um, I hope that his health improves. Um, but we'll just have to really follow this case closely. It's super important. So if you weren't aware of this taking place this week, and you know, I don't necessarily blame you since it's been delayed a lot, definitely pay attention to this because there is a lot at stake here. So it's no secret that the Democratic Party um, and its loyalists do not like the Green Party. In fact, they loathe the Green Party. And it's not necessarily because of the policies that the Green Party supports. It's because the Green Party is seen as a competitor to the Democratic Party. And they primarily dislike them because they view the Greens as spoilers in elections, predominantly presidential elections. Now, on this program, I have talked repeatedly about the electoral reform that we can implement, that Democrats could implement, that's relatively easy, that would stop this from being an issue. If you are worried about the spoiler effect, there are measures you can take to minimize the threat of spoilage. But Democrats aren't opting for electoral reform. Rather, they are waging a war on the Green Party, and they're going about minimizing the effect of spoilage in a much more aggressive way. So this article from the Texas Tribune kind of sheds light on that. Quote, Texas Democrats are successfully suing to kick Green Party candidates off the November ballot. Democrats won legal rulings Wednesday blocking Green Party nominees for U.S. Senate, Railroad Commissioner, and the 21st Congressional District from appearing on the November ballot. Now, the article goes on to explain, state and national Democrats are waging a legal offensive to kick Green Party candidates off the ballot in some of Texas's highest profile races this fall, and they are seeing success. The Democrats are largely targeting Green Party candidates because they have not paid filing fees, a new requirement for third parties under a law passed by the legislature last year. The filing fees were already required of Democratic and Republican candidates. Multiple lawsuits that remain pending are challenging the new law, and the Green Party of Texas has been upfront that most of its candidates are not paying the fees while they await a resolution to the litigation. The Green Party argues that the filing fees, which go up to $5,000 for a U.S. Senate race, are an unconstitutional burden. It has also pointed out that the fees normally go toward primaries, something neither the Green nor Libertarian parties conducts because both nominate their candidates at conventions. Only two of the Green Party's eight nominees for November have submitted the fees, according to the Secretary of State. Responding to Wednesday's rulings, the Texas Green Party said the legal challenges were suspiciously timed, coming after the Monday deadline for write-in candidates to file with the state and days before a series of deadlines finalizing the November ballot. Now, Texas isn't the only state where the Green Party's voters are being 
disenfranchised. It's also happening in other states across the country. This is kind of a national strategy that Democrats seem to be pursuing. And I'm not necessarily saying that this is the agenda of the National Democratic Party because it's very decentralized and oftentimes it occurs at the state level. But Democrats are, in fact, trying to get the Greens off the ballot. And this just happened in Wisconsin. So now in the state of Wisconsin in 2020, Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker, the Green Party nominees, will not be on the ballot. So as the Washington Post explains, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled Monday that the Green Party presidential ticket is ineligible to appear on the state ballot, a relief for state and local election officials who feared an addition at this late date would upend election preparations. The decision comes after the Wisconsin Elections Commission declined on August 20th to put presidential contender Howie Hawkins and his Green Party running mate Angela Walker on the November 3rd ballot because their signature petitions featured two different addresses for Walker. State election officials had argued that the campaign failed to fix the discrepancy according to state requirements. A reversal of that decision would have triggered a scramble across the state among election officials who would have had to order new ballots and find the money to pay for them, while facing imminent state and federal deadlines to send them to voters. Now, CNN adds, Democrats will claim the ruling as a win for their nominee, Joe Biden, because Hawkins could have played spoiler in a state that had one of the closest margins in 2016. In 2016, Green Party candidate Jill Stein received 31,072 votes in Wisconsin, more than the 22,748 vote margin that handed Trump a victory in the state over Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. Now, I included those last two paragraphs from CNN because I've heard this argument a lot, not just from pundits, not just from Democratic Party officials, but from a lot of individuals who are concerned about the spoiler effect. And it's interesting because it makes a really bold assumption. It assumes that all of those votes that went to Jill Stein would have automatically went to Hillary Clinton if Jill Stein wasn't an option, if she wasn't on the ballot in 2016. However, if you're going to assume that Jill Stein played spoiler to Hillary Clinton, you also have to assume that Gary Johnson played spoiler to Donald Trump. And as a result, all of the votes that would have otherwise went to uh, Gary Johnson would have went to Donald Trump had Gary Johnson not been an option. So if we actually remove all the spoilers from this equation, what would have happened in Wisconsin in 2016? Well, Gary Johnson got three times more votes than Jill Stein. So technically, he was actually a bigger spoiler than Jill Stein. So let's take both of these spoilers out of the equation and distribute both of their vote totals to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Now, when you do this, as you can see here, Donald Trump still wins. And he doesn't just win again in this scenario. He actually increases his margin of victory. So if we're talking about spoilers in Wisconsin... The spoiler effect actually helped Democrats in this instance if we're going to accept this notion that, you know, those votes would have automatically went to one of the two main parties had the spoiler options not been on the ballot. But there's this assumption that when we're talking about the spoiler effect, it automatically harms Democrats. But it goes both ways. Again, if you assume that all of those votes that went to Jill Stein would have went to Hillary Clinton if Jill Stein wasn't an option, you have to assume the same if you're logical on the other side, because the Libertarian Party is more closer to Republicans ideologically than they are to Democrats and the Green Party. So you have to assume that if Jill Stein was a spoiler for Hillary Clinton, Gary Johnson was a spoiler for Donald Trump, but removing both spoilers still doesn't help Hillary Clinton. She still loses, but loses by a larger margin because the spoiler effect helped the Democrats in Wisconsin, but Hillary Clinton still lost. But let's kind of put aside 
whether or not Jill Stein was or wasn't a spoiler, in spite of the reality of the spoiler effect, which is a real thing in many instances, is it democratic to remove a party off of the ballot to prevent spoilage? I would argue not only that it's undemocratic, but it's a form of voter suppression. It is a form of voter suppression. Because in a country where, what is it, like a third of Americans don't vote, maybe larger, we need people to vote. We need them to participate in democracy because if people don't partake in the process, democracy dies. So we need there to be some sort of buy-in. And just getting people to vote in and of itself is a challenge. But if you're discouraging them from voting, not only is that bad for democracy, but it could end up being counterproductive. Because let's say somebody in Wisconsin didn't actually want to support Hillary Clinton, but they came out to vote for Jill Stein. Well, the presidential race isn't the only race taking place. Maybe there wasn't a good Green Party option for the U.S. Senate or their House representative. So now, if those voters who were only coming out to vote for Jill Stein don't have that option or didn't have that option in 2016, maybe now we're not helping down-ballot Democrats. Because I voted for Jill Stein in 2016, but then down the ticket, I voted for Democrats. And I say this as someone who lives in a deep blue state. I would actually vote for Joe Biden or would have voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 had I lived in a battleground state. But I acknowledge that even in these swing states, there are going to be people that aren't going to do that. They're not going to do what I would do. People are going to vote third party. That's just a fact of reality. Third parties exist in every single democracy around the world, including in two-party systems. That is a fact of reality. You are never going to get away from that. Third parties exist in democracies, and even if they're never going to win or they're not electorally successful most of the time, the fact that they exist means democracy is working. But once you start shutting them out, that means democracy isn't working. And I think Owen Higgins put it best, 100% going to be one of those moments we look back on in 5-10 to 10 years as a precursor to something worse, and all the people you see celebrating it today will be oh so confused. And I say this because it's troubling to see Democrats celebrate this celebrate the greens getting kicked off the ballot you can simultaneously acknowledge that the greens could potentially be a spoiler in some instances but also acknowledge that third parties and independents will always be on the ballots in our system even in two-party systems that's something that all democracies have to deal with even in canada they have basically a multi-party system i mean it's still pretty majoritarian you usually just have either the conservatives or the liberals in power and government but even in certain writings you have to determine do i want to vote for ndp which is the more left-wing party if that means that the liberals will be less likely to defeat the conservative i mean this is something that you have to grapple with as a democracy it's one of the things that comes with democracy they're always going to exist now you can choose to suppress them and suppress votes of these parties, or you can choose to do electoral reform. But Democrats haven't pursued that, and instead they are celebrating Greens getting kicked off the ballot. And someone who I admire and respect, very much so. Adi Barkin literally celebrated this and implied that this was like a triumph for democracy because voters have less options. And I love you, Adi. You're a great person, and I respect everything that you do. I really admire your advocacy for Medicare for All, but restricting options 
isn't going to make our democracy more democratic. It's going to be antithetical to democracy. Because again, even if you're worried about the spoiler effect, that's democracy. Too bad. Win over those votes or do electoral reform. And here's the thing, like, Democrats have been worried about the Green Party now for decades. Even back in the 90s, there were articles from the New York Times of Democrats speaking out about how they're worried about the rise of the Green Party. And this came after Bill Clinton's third-way approach drove a lot of people out of the Democratic Party and they started to gravitate more towards the Green Party. And decades have passed, but what have Democrats done to minimize the spoiler effect? Not a single goddamn thing, unless we're talking about voter suppression and trying to kick the Greens off the ballots or try to disenfranchise Green voters, you know, kick them out of debates. Listen, if you truly are worried about the spoiler effect, you can try to kick the Greens off the ballot. That is one way to uh, minimize the spoiler effect, but you're going to cultivate resentment. But a more powerful way of minimizing the spoiler effect is by instituting ranked choice voting nationwide. Democrats have been worried about the Green Party again for a really long time. They had a supermajority in 2009. Why didn't you institute ranked choice voting then? Hell, now there's a phenomenal bill by Don Byers Jr. It's H.R. 4000. This is called the Fair Representation Act. Do you know how many Democrats have co-sponsored this legislation? Six. Six Democrats. All of them claim to be worried about the spoiler effect. Very few of them have co-sponsored this legislation. Has any member of Congress who's spoken out against the threat that Greens pose to our democracy co-sponsored this bill, which would move us to rank choice voting? Make us more proportional? Well, no, because they don't want to do that. Because they would rather browbeat people into supporting them rather than changing themselves. Like you can, if you want to minimize the spoiler effect, what you can try to do is undercut the appeal of the Green Party. Embrace one big policy on the Green Party's platform, Medicare for all. And then you tell voters, listen, you want Medicare for all? You have to vote for us. We're the ones who support Medicare for all. I get that they have a better foreign policy plan than us. I get that they support, you know, a, a more robust education reform plan. But we support Medicare for all. You got to vote for us. We're the only ones who can win. Vote for us. We live in a two-party system. They can do that. They can try to undercut the appeal of the Green Party by copying some of those policies. They're not doing that. They can do electoral reform. Uh, they don't seem interested in that. In fact, at a town hall a couple of years ago, I asked my own representative uh, if she would be willing to co-sponsor HR 4000. It was HR uh, 3057, I think, at the time. And she said, oh, well, I haven't heard of this. I will look into it. It's been a couple of years. She hasn't co-sponsored it yet, so they don't seem interested in actually minimizing the spoiler effect because they don't want to share power. If they actually did ranked choice voting, that would lead to them losing power because people would gravitate more towards the Greens in many instances if they weren't worried about the spoiler effect. But because normal voters themselves are worried about the spoiler effect, that's why Duverger's law is a thing. That's why we have the two-party duopoly. It's because nobody wants to spoil the vote, so they end up making a strategic choice to vote for one of the two main parties, so that way one of the worst options don't win. I mean, I would be doing this in a swing state. 
So at the end of the day, I'm not going to say that it's illegitimate to be, you know, concerned about the spoiler effect because I'm always concerned. Like I was concerned about the spoiler effect uh, during the Democratic Party primaries. I was worried that, you know, the progressive or anti-establishment candidates would split the votes. I wanted everyone to kind of consolidate around Bernie Sanders so we'd have the best shot at winning. I mean, this is what you do. You have to be strategic, right? So it's not like you're unreasonable if you're worried about the spoiler effect. And I understand the need to defeat Donald Trump and to avoid the threat of fascism. Like, I get this. I'm not minimizing the worry that spoilage poses. But what I am saying is that if you do want to minimize the threat of spoilers, uh, Maine has led the way. Maine has led the way. A corporate Democrat won the Democratic Party primary, and you have a Green Party member still running with zero threat of spoiling that Senate race against Susan Collins. You have Lisa Savage running. You can rank your choices. If you want to vote for Lisa Savage, if you don't really like Sarah Gideon, you can rank your choices. Lisa Savage won, Sarah Gideon two. This is a ballot initiative. Now, Democrats can speed up this process, uh, make it easier by just introducing this legislatively. Will they do that? Probably not. Because then you're kind of agreeing to share power with Greens. Like, I'm not saying that if we had ranked choice voting overnight, the Greens would be electorally viable and Libertarians would be electorally viable. But if we did nationwide ranked choice voting and simple electoral reform like that, would the threat of spoilage go away? Absolutely. But yet we hear nothing about that from the people who scream the loudest about this issue. And it's not like you know, the Greens just manifested in 2016 with Jill Stein. It's not like they just, you know, came into existence uh, with Ralph Nader back in 2000. There's always going to be third parties in democratic systems. That is a fact of reality. Third parties that are not viable. And even in multi-party systems, there are fringe parties that never get elected but still exist because people vote for them. You can never vote for them yourselves. You can disagree with their existence. But their existence is legitimate if you believe in democracy. You can't have it both ways. If you support democracy, you have to support the existence of these parties. But what you can do is actually make our electoral system more equitable. But again, the people who I hear scream the loudest about the spoiler effect, they're not talking about ranked choice voting. And that is really, really frustrating. So this is what Democrats are doing. They're going to try to get the Greens kicked off the ballot in order to avoid the spoiler effect when they could just do ranked choice voting or try to appeal to the Green Party's voters. Because the Green Party, we don't know for a fact that if Jill Stein wasn't on the ballot in Wisconsin every Jill Stein voter would have supported Hillary Clinton. Like, I'd be willing to guess at least half of them would have stayed home and not voted. And at a time when voter participation is really low, that's a sign that our democracy is in poor health and we don't need less people to vote. We don't need to give people fewer reasons to vote. We need to give people more reasons to vote. But that's just my take. And uh, I agree with Owen Higgins. This is a precursor of something much worse to come. Now, that's too bad. Because if you're worried about the spoiler effect, you can go about it in a much more equitable way where you're not turning off millions of people potentially. Well, that is everything, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, as usual, uh, I want to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal members who make the show possible, who help it to not just survive but thrive as well. Uh, this is truly like 
You guys are the ones who make the show possible, so thank you so much. Uh, before we leave, uh, of course, a special programming note. We have reached 300,000 subscribers on YouTube. Um, and after almost a year of algorithmic suppression on YouTube, it feels honestly unbelievable that we reached this milestone we're no david packman yet we have a long way to go before we hit 1 million congrats to david but you know it does feel good to hit 300k i will be putting out a special thank you video where i announced that we hit 300k and i'll tell you about what we have planned for the show going forward and some pretty exciting announcements uh but that's everything i'll see you all next week take care everyone